Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, there's one thing that just about the entire world has in common, particularly as the population grows, which even though people are not having babies as they used to, the population is still growing and we expect to hit a peak as a planet in terms of population in 2050. There's one thing Every single one of us have in common, every man, woman, and child, no matter what gender we claim to be, no matter what language to speak, we speak, it's that we use power. We use a lot of energy. And right now, we are having a lot of questions about where the future of the world's energy will be coming from. Now, um, before we talk about energy and specifically nuclear power, which I'm eager to uh, take your calls on at 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. I really want to give my best wishes to the people of Nashville. We have uh, a lot of great listeners listening to us on uh, WUCT. A lot of people have uh, written to me over the years and not over the years, over the couple of months that we've been on there and said they really like the show and I hear from them a great deal. They don't take the show live. They take it a couple hours later. So that's why you don't maybe hear as many Nashville callers uh, calling in the first hour or two of the show. And um, since this is the first shooting that Nashville has experienced, the first major mass school shooting since Nashville has experienced A lot of folks in the Nashville area may wonder, well, why isn't Frank talking about that? Well, the rest of the audience in every other city has heard me explain this before. About 10 months ago, I stopped commenting on these mass shootings, particularly in schools, for a few reasons. One, it's depressing. Two, I I don't see what the value is. In me commenting on it, other than to for me to be sad and to depress everyone else, especially with all these other news channels and all these other radio stations going wall to wall on uh, uh, in terms of coverage on this three, nothing changes this. Both political sides of the aisle make the same points playing to the cheap seats. There's no real effort at all 
to actually bring an end to this in a concrete way. There's a lot of uh, of soldiering into your your already ideologically defined rigid position, but there doesn't seem to be much of a need, uh, or at least not much of a pressing need, to put aside partisanship and actually get to the bottom of why these issues are happening. And then lastly, and this is probably the most important reason that I don't talk about these anymore, I am concerned that even if we don't mention the shooters' names, I am concerned that just by talking about this, just by providing relentless media coverage and giving air to the shootings like this, that it leads other mass shootings to take place in the future. So that's why I don't uh, talk about these anymore. It's not for a lack of being sad. It's not for a lack of uh, being aware, particularly as a father now. When I see stories of uh, of innocent children being murdered, it makes me cry, and more so than ever, uh, honestly. But uh, I am not talking about it because I don't want to give an idea to the next person, uh, the next person that be a little, might be a little mentally unstable. I don't want them to think that they can live on in some sort of bizarre infamy after they're gone through committing one of these atrocities. That is the last I am mentioning of this. Uh, I always say we talk about anything and everything on this show. I'm happy to take calls on anything and everything at 800-848-9222. You want to call about the Nashville shooting? Please call another show because I don't have an interest in discussing it any further than I just did. Now, we saw the news yesterday that a Minnesota nuclear power plant, uh, they say they fixed a radioactive leak, but the process killed hundreds of fish. The XL Energy Monticello nuclear generating plant sits close to the Mississippi River, and the utility company started powering it down on Friday, which cooled the surrounding water. The Minnesota Pollution Control Agency says the temperature change killed about 230 fish, including bass, uh, channel catfish, carp, and suckerfish. And the plant went offline so crews could fix a leak that spilled 400,000 gallons of contaminated water late last year. The temporary fix failed last week, spilling even more of the water. Monday night, Minnesotans living near the plant had another chance to ask questions during a community hearing. Last week, XL Energy said some of the contamination made it to the groundwater, which flows towards the Mississippi. Still, the company says there's no threat to the public or the environment. And what I think this is doing, what I think this has done, the situation in Minnesota, coupled with the global energy crisis the world is experiencing, what we're seeing in terms of America, what we're seeing in terms of other countries, has a lot of folks wondering, is it time to ramp up nuclear power again? Uh, you see stories like that. You see 243 fish killed. You see uh, stories of uh, leaks into the the public water or something along those lines. You think, okay, nuclear power is great, but I certainly wouldn't want him to live near one. I remember uh, I was on the air with Curtis uh, 12 years ago after one of the worst nuclear disasters in history shook Japan, and it turned the public in that country and maybe in other countries as well, against atomic energy. Well, now, what's happening now is just fascinating because a global energy crisis is encouraging the country to switch its reactors 
back on. Faced with rising heating bills over the winter, after a sweltering summer spent worrying about blackouts, more people are now reappraising the benefits of cheaper and more stable energy. Even some of those living near nuclear power plants are looking beyond their fears of another radioactive disaster. Uh, Sutomi Hirayama, a 56-year-old hotel owner in Tomioka, a coastal town between the now decommissioned Fukushima uh, number one plant and its sister plant, Fukushima number two, he said the rising power bills are really painful. I've never seen anything like it. And I think seeing our, our power bills are going up in the United States, at least in where I live, not me because I'm switching to solar and I'm going to be locked in to basically the same price for the next quarter century. But for most people, their energy bills are going up significantly. Given the current economic downturn, rising prices and a surge in fuel costs, people are wondering if there is any choice but to use nuclear power in order to survive. I have spent many years looking at the issue of nuclear power. And I still don't know what to think. My gut tells me that any future energy solutions are going to have to include nuclear power, though. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Ten years ago, when they had Crossfire 2.0, CNN tried to bring this back. I don't know why they don't try and bring this back now. It's supposedly in keeping with everything Chris Licht says he wants to do. They had well, two people I admire a great deal, both environmentalists, both on the uh, leftward end of the political spectrum. Generally, I mean, they're kind of hard to define. They're sort of all over the place debating the issue of nuclear power. This was after Fukushima. This was after Japan had basically turned away from nuclear power. This is after other developing countries were upping their calls to shut down nuclear reactors. But it was before New York had shut down Indian Point. But it was right around the time that you started to hear louder and louder cries for shutting down Indian Point. On the side against nuclear power was my hero, longtime consumer advocate Ralph Nader. Tell that to the Fukushima area, the Chernobyl area. Tell it to the areas where hundreds of square miles are now uninhabitable. And the Atomic Energy Commission in the 1950s, Michael, said that a Class 9 accident in the U.S. would contaminate an area, quote, the size of Pennsylvania. You don't want to have an energy source that has one bite of the apple. You have a disaster, whether it's due to sabotage, earthquake, horrendous hurricane, or uh, human error or design defect. Any of those. Ralph, Ralph, this if you have one major yeah. disaster, it'll affect yeah. all other nuclear plants. You know this- that. Now, I heard that argument, and it seemed to make a lot of sense. Michael Schellenberger, on the other end of things, said this. But even if you don't care about global warming or you don't think it's much of a problem, um, consider this. Earlier this year, former NASA climate scientist James Hansen did a study. He found that nuclear energy over the last 40 years that's been used worldwide has saved 1.8 million lives by producing zero air pollution energy. And he says that if we expand it, we'll save another 7 million lives. Those numbers have to be convincing for people that care about climate change. There's still radiation. Zero air pollution energy. Now, I am somebody that's concerned 
about climate change. But even if you're not concerned about climate change, who wants pollution in the air? You go out, ask the people in India where you can't even go outside and take a deep breath without choking if they'd like clean air. So Japan is now turning towards, once again, nuclear energy. You know what other country is? The United States. A new nuclear reactor has turned on. For the first time since 2016, a new nuclear reactor in the U.S. has reached the stage where it's begun splitting atoms. The Vogdal Unit 3 reactor in Georgia hit that milestone last week, which puts it on track to become fully operational this summer. Including the Vogdal reactor, there are currently 93 nuclear reactors operating in the U.S. that together generate 20% of the nation's electricity. New nuclear projects have slowed down dramatically since the accident at uh, Pennsylvania's Three Mile Island. Is it possible to have safe nuclear energy? Is there a solution that everybody can accept to how to handle nuclear waste? 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Let me begin with John in Reno. John, is nuclear energy the future or an accident waiting to happen? It's the future. It's by far the best chance we have. It reduces pollution. It's more efficient. Uh, We're foolish that we fell behind the Europeans in nuclear power. Thank you, John. 800-848-9222. Rick in Elmwood, nuclear energy, yay or nay? No, we don't need nuclear. We can use oil. Uh, Global warming is not caused by CO2, and the temperatures have been falling since 2016, so the whole thing is false. CO2 isn't pollution either. Well, but, okay, let's say you're right, okay? Um, you'll acknowledge the air in places like India is filthy to breathe because of the of the pollution um, in those places, right? Yes, but that's pollution. That's particulates. CO2 isn't a pollution. It isn't particulates. It's plant food. And the real dangerous level of atmospheric CO2 is 150 parts per million. At that level, all plants die, all animals die, all humans die. So uh, your, your view is not only nuclear power is a solution for a problem that doesn't exist, and uh, maybe it's too dangerous because of the potential for something like an accident or a terrorist attack. Exactly. Okay. Especially now, I don't know how many terrorists are falling across the border at this moment. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Chris in Staten Island, nuclear power, is it the future or the past? I think nuclear power is the future. Uh, the, one, the reason the Fukushima plant failed was because they didn't follow the guidelines presented to them by uh, the GM architecture team. Uh, the, the nuclear plant that they closed up the Hudson River had their key equipment up higher for tsunami reasons, and a tsunami wasn't going to go up the Hudson River. And it's a model plant for Fukushima. Fukushima had their key equipment at sea level to save money. They didn't want to put the key equipment up 40 feet. The other thing is if you go through all of these nuclear power failures, Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, everything, they, they, it, they put these people in there doing maintenance who didn't know what they were doing. It was like their first week on the job. So if they're going to have nuclear power, 
They need to follow the, the recommendations 100%, and they need to have practices in place such that they can do maintenance so that we don't have these disasters. Hey, Chris, you make a very convincing case, and uh, I uh, th- that's kind of the direction that I'm leading, exactly what you just said. Better regulation, better safety requirements, stricter adherence to those safety standards wherever these nuclear power plants are. Joe is in New Jersey. What do you think? Uh, well, the, the uh, company that was working on it was owned by uh, Lorillard Pete, and he did sloppy work. And I think uh, I think they had already spent almost a trillion dollars on this plant. And on, on which that plant? Company, on which plant? In New Orleans. It's right across the river from the from the town, and uh, they replaced it with us, our, our company. So you worked that at was- a nuclear power plant. It wasn't active. It was being built. Okay. It was it was, uh, it was a twin reactor, and the reason the uh, reactors are there is they're just to heat up the water because that turns the turbines, which the steam creates uh, from the nuclear way from the nuclear, not waste, the nuclear power, and uh, they uh, uh, even though they replaced the company with this other company. They still made mistakes because one of the welders there, we... The, the so, Joe, went, I, I have to wrap up here because we have Jeremy Corbell waiting in the wings. But give me the key takeaway. Should the country move uh, towards okay. nuclear power or should we avoid this, nuclear this power? This is important. This is very important. Yeah, so answer my so question. The, hot, the Cold War was on. They didn't know if we were going to have a nuclear war with Russia. And this plant was built that if it went on a 15-degree tilt, it would still be able to be usable. So it's the way the, cons- the thing is constructed. Also, the All right, Joe. Thank you. I got to run. Um, you want to hold uh, to weigh in on this topic. We're going to take more calls on it later. But there has been a fascinating image that has been making the rounds. What looks exactly like a flying saucer was spotted over Mosul in Iraq about seven years ago. The video, the photos, is now just being made public. We're going to get into it with Jeremy Corbell, uh, probably the best journalist on this subject in the entire country. That's straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight presents the Midnight Files. Midnight in the desert, shooting stars across the sky.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I am very, very pleased. You know how much I enjoy discussing all things related to UAPs, UFOs, whatever your preferred three-letter acronym is. And I'm very pleased to tell you we have the guest that is probably the number one guest in America as an authority on that subject. He is a podcaster and documentary filmmaker who has released the most recent round of UFO videos and uh, which has and who has released previous UFO videos that the Pentagon has confirmed as authentic. Every time you see UFOs in the news, chances are it's because it had something to do with a story that was broken or at least covered by Jeremy Corbell. Jeremy, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for taking the time to join me. Yeah, Frank, thanks for having me on again. Good to hear your voice. So uh, you're doing a podcast now, Weaponized, with, uh, with George Knapp, who's sort of a, a legend when it comes to being a journalist covering this thing. Uh, this is a, a very different format than what you're used to, uh, videos, filmmaking, documentary, uh, document, documentary stuff. But you're doing great with it. I enjoy listening to it. I listened to two episodes today. How are you finding doing a podcast as opposed to the video medium? Yeah, it's excellent. Actually, we are releasing a video with the podcast almost every other time so people can can actually watch the conversations, which which I love, the visual medium as well. But the cool thing about the podcast and, and why we decided to do Weaponized is because we can instantaneously every week just release cases that we're working on that normally you'd have to wait a long amount of time to get them out through the film uh you know, medium or through mm. television. So the podcast is really immediate. Every week we can be breaking news. And uh, it's very effective. I want to talk to you about a bunch of different things, as many as we have time for. But uh, one story that you did on a recent edition of Weaponized has to do with Harry Reid. A lot of people remember him as the former Senate Majority Leader. And the emergence of AAWSAP, a secretive UFO investigation. Now, Harry Reid was very open talking about this stuff, particularly after he retired. But while he was in the Senate, he was very, very active in getting funding for things like ATIP and different UFO exploration programs. And the fact that Area 51 is in his home state of Nevada, I'm sure played a, a role as well. If this is the first time people are hearing about AAWSAP. Tell us what it is. Sure, yeah. So that stands for AWSAP, Advanced Aerospace Weapon System Applications Program. It's a mouthful, but check this out. The New York Times did this story about UFOs, and everybody heard about it. This was in 2017. UFOs are real, and the government is now studying them. That was news because it was Project Blue Book in 1969 where the government said, we stopped studying UFOs. Well, it turns out that wasn't true. So what people don't know is that the main program that Senator Harry Reid created through the black budget was called AWSAP. And that program that we just that I just said the acronym for, that one was our government's largest UFO study that we know of of all time. They had 50 full-time employees, hundreds of thousands of cases that they looked at back into history. So people confused it with the New York Times article saying it was a tip, which was a completely mm. different thing. It, it, it happened after the OSAP program. Look, it, it doesn't really matter all of these names of programs. Here's the headline. Your government, the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and other agencies have been studying the UFO phenomenon 
generationally. They've been studying them all the way back from 1969 till now. So this is something your government is taking very seriously and for good reason. So just clarify, uh, ATIP versus OSAP, uh, what was the program that Harry Reid funded? It was OSAP, not not ATIP as reported by the New York Times? Correct. The New York Times said that there was $22 million given to a UFO program that they identified as ATIP. The, the problem was that was incorrect. It was OSAP. That was the name of mother program, the big program. However, after OSAP lost its funding... A group of people, including Lou Elizondo, this this incredible guy mm-hmm. who decided to, to move forward with this research, they founded a group called ATIP, but it wasn't funded by the $22 million like the New York Times said. Look, it really doesn't matter to me. The, the main point here is that our government has been actively studying UFOs and for good reason. So that's the difference between OSAP and ATIP. OSAP was the true name of the program that got funded. ATIP was a consortium of people that came together and said, we're going to study just military cases of UFOs. And they did great work, but it wasn't funded with the $22 million. I see. I see. Uh, to the best of your knowledge and based on what your research suggests, is OSAP uh, still active? And if it is, what is it doing? Right. So not under that same name. No. So when that program lost its funding, it dissolved. So that program itself is not happening in the same way we know it now. But I will tell you from my own personal knowledge that there are a multitude of UFO programs in almost every branch of our military right now where where our government is studying UFOs. The thing is, is that the OSAP program became famous and the ATIP program became famous because they were acknowledged. Mm-hmm. However, these studies are ongoing. Everything from biological effects, what they say of close proximity to UFOs or to UAPs, when these encounters happen and people get close to them physically, there's often detrimental effects to the human body. And this is well studied by the OSAC group, but also it's being studied now. About a month ago, you made worldwide news and probably quite literally interstellar news with the (laughs) uh, image that you published that showed an unknown object in a a conflict zone, the so-called Mosul Orb. You've done an episode of Weaponized about it, focused on the, the Baghdad Phantom. It's an image from 2016 of something that looks pretty much like a flying saucer, over Mosul in Iraq. What exactly are we looking at in this image, Jeremy? Right. So what's important about this, so it's called the Mosul Orb. This was contained within a classified briefing. Like a lot of what I have obtained and released to the public, this was verified by the Pentagon that that was part of UFO studies, that it was in these classified audiovisual briefings. And this image is no different. The Mosul Orb was one of the images that our government presented as, hey, these are UFOs. This is what we're seeing. Here is an image of it. And, And in fact, I was able to obtain that and release it to the public. It is not inherently classified. There's no designation on the image itself. So as a journalist, if I receive something like this, and if I vet it, and I am sure that it is within these classified briefings, I can release it because it is inherently unclassified. So what you're seeing in the Mosul Orb is a sphere. It's a metallic sphere that was caught by a reconnaissance plane that was flying over Mosul, Iraq. So I was able to obtain it and release it. The world can now see it. Now, by the way, this image was part of a video, and that video does exist. 
And I am challenging our Pentagon to try to release that to the American public because the American public deserves to see this astounding video. It's just one of many that our government has accumulated under the idea of these are UFOs. They're using this image and this video to teach our armed services. This is what a UFO looks like. And they're trying to educate them for better reporting. Well, I think the American public deserves to see the video. Yeah, I, I would uh, certainly agree. If people want to see the uh, the image and uh, if the the any other of the videos that you uh, that you make available, what's the best place to do that? What's sort of your home base for showcasing images and videos that you've you've come into contact with and you've achieved through your incredible sources? Thanks, man. Yeah, the best place for people to go to is just weaponizedpodcast.com because that's where I'm releasing all of this new information with George Knapp. So we, we have obtained a series of videos and images and all of this will be going out over the next 10 months to the public. Everything we have, we want people to see it, to look at it and to help us to try to understand what it is we're looking at. Mm, it's uh, certainly very interesting. On the Weaponized podcast, you uh, did a really fascinating uh, interview, uh, well, actually really a discussion about the joke that I think a lot of people remember about storming Area 51. It started out as a joke, and then it became a uh, sort of a Facebook meme that everyone was going to go down to Area 51 and sort of break into it, to, uh, as they said in the in the Facebook group invite, let's see them aliens. But you actually had a really substantive conversation about it. What did that internet meme, that, uh, that chain internet joke, actually become in reality? Yeah, that was pretty incredible. So I had just released recently my film, Bob Lazar, Area 51, and Flying Saucers. It was on Netflix, and this kid watched it, and then he watched a podcast that I did with Joe Rogan mm. and, and Bob Lazar. And so the kid kind of just put up this meme, hey, let's storm Area 51. And we thought it was a joke at first, but all of a sudden, next thing I know, the kid's calling me, the FBI is at his house, it became very dramatic. Over 2 million people said that they were going to go storm Area 51, which is a horrible idea. So, so essentially at that time, it became this thing where, okay, people are going there. Let's try to redirect that energy into something good. And I got to say, a lot of people showed up in Rachel, Nevada, which is on the outskirts of Area 51. And we actually had a really interesting and fun weekend. There was music and, and people came together out of common curiosity. I mean, look, everybody wants to know what's happening in there inside of Area 51. Are there flying saucers like a guy named Bob Lazar told us there were back in 1989 when, when George Knapp broke that story? That was the big question. So it ended up being this event where everybody goes to the area. There were thousands of people. And what really bonded everybody together was this common desire to know what is it that's going on with UFOs? Why has this been kept secret from the American public for so long? Our government is now admitting that UFOs are real. They represent a technology that outpaces, outmaneuvers, and outperforms anything that we've created here in the United States. And anything, it's beyond other nations' ability to create. And that was the big moment when our government admitted that, that we don't know. Who is operating UFOs? I don't know where UFOs are from. I don't know what they represent to us. But I damn sure know that they're not ours, they're not Chinese, and they're not Russian. So whose are they? 
Well, I want to follow up on a, a few of those different areas. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Jeremy Corbell. If you haven't seen that documentary yet about uh, Bob Lazar and, uh, and Area 51, I highly uh, recommend it. In part due to that uh, documentary, Jeremy, you mentioned that young man that started that, uh, that Facebook rush Area 51 thing. There's been a resurgence of in- interest in what's actually at Area 51. Does the evidence suggest, and I know you've done more interviews with Bob Lazar than probably anybody, but does the evidence suggest that there is actually potentially uh, alien craft and maybe even alien bodies of some sort at Area 51? Well, certainly the evidence suggested at one time that we were doing what they call exploitation or reverse engineering programs out at sub-bases of Area 51 that had to do with, they say, non-terrestrial technology, UFOs. Now, if those programs are still being run out of there, I wouldn't know. There seems to be a number of places where they could be run out of, but Area 51 is a very unique base. I mean, it's well-positioned. It's not going away. Projects will continue out there. To this day, they continue out there. Important secret projects, projects that shouldn't be known by the public. I'm not asking for our government to release all the information. But like Bob Lazar said, it's a crime to keep it from the American public and the global public if indeed we have craft from somewhere else, not from Earth, and we've been working on them, which absolutely appears to be the case. No matter how strange that sounds, all the evidence lies in that. We've had people come forward beyond a shadow of a doubt. There's something going on when it comes to reverse engineering UFOs. Now, where that's being done now, I can only guess. I'm sure you have heard the the legend of Jackie Gleason and Richard Nixon, which uh, Jackie yeah. Gleason's uh, interest in uh, extraterrestrials and UFOs is well-known, well-documented. He talked about it repeatedly on the radio with people like Long John Nebel and others. And the story goes that Richard Nixon actually took Jackie Gleason to see a flying saucer. Do you believe that that's a true story? Yeah, well, the story goes, he took him and showed him the bodies. Is that what you heard yes, as well? Yes, Yeah, so I think his wife, didn't she talk about this and, and write something about this? I, I don't know the whole lore of it, but yeah, it is my understanding that that is a, a true story. Now, I wasn't there. I wouldn't know for sure, but it does sound something, it does sound like something Nixon would do. Yeah, it, it does indeed. Hey, uh, 20 years ago, this subject was not something that was seriously discussed within the halls of government, at least not publicly. This was limited to uh, science fiction films, late night radio shows, and uh, dime store pulp books, comic books, that kind of a thing. It was not something that serious journalists did, let alone serious politicians. Over the course of the last, especially the last six years, but maybe even a little bit beyond that, we have seen a radical change in the attitude, at least the public attitude, of members of Congress. And you hear members of Congress, Congressman Burkett of Tennessee, people like Senator Marco Rubio, people like uh, Senator Mark Warner, asking for answers, wanting to hold hearings. What do you attribute the change in attitude on the part of Congress to this subject to? Yeah, I've talked to a number of the people that that you just mentioned there, and there is a great interest in getting to the bottom of this. Basically, they know they've been lied to, mm. and I don't think anybody likes 
being lied to. If you remember back in the day, we, we had the church committee and it unraveled this whole thing that intelligence agencies were keeping hidden from Congress. And we don't want a repeat of that. So a lot of the people involved in the Senate Intelligence Committee and in Congress and just Senate, they're, they're looking at this and saying, wow, we've been lied to. There are machines that seem to outpace what we have, and we should know from a national security standpoint who's operating these machines. Some of the problems we have is in these conflict zones, a lot of this information is being discarded. It's not putting up the chain of command into an archive and a repository where this can be looked at by scientists because they're not on mission. So the issue is we're discarding this information. Everybody knows if you're in the armed services and dealing with this, that UFOs are something that occur around us all the time. It's increasing in frequency. That is true. So the issue that they're having is they, they think from a national security standpoint, we need transparency. We need to face this head on. So I think you're really seeing Congress and Senate just being fired up that somebody is holding this information and, and they're obfuscating the truth from them. And I really hope that their endeavors will succeed. They're really trying to open the books on UFOs address the skeptics in our audience. There are going to be a lot of skeptics listening to our discussion that say, look, uh, Jeremy gets to do a podcast about this. He gets to make a lot of very successful documentaries. He has a very successful YouTube channel. And if he were to come out and say that um, that uh, there's no such thing as uh, UAP visitation to our planet from elsewhere and to go along with the accepted conventional wisdom wisdom for the last 30 years, then all of a sudden Jeremy's industry goes away. There are still some people, even with the mountains of photographic evidence, even with the mountains of eyewitness testimony that we've heard from people over the years, there are still some people that just won't believe it, and uh, which confounds me to no end. But I'm asking you, Jeremy, to address the skeptics in our audience. Is there anything that you can say to prove to them that what we both believe is true is in fact the case? You know, it's interesting. People don't understand. I, I am more skeptical than, than people think. You know, I've heard everything under the rainbow, man. I've I've heard everybody's story. I am probably more skeptical about what cases are UFO cases and, and what aren't. But if, if you don't see at this point, if you don't understand that the weight, the volume of evidence is so large if you don't see that by now, it's because you're, you're willfully ignorant. You don't want to see it. So there's a difference between skepticism, which is good in any particular case, and just like a debunker. You, know, you talk about my industry. The thing is, UFOs have been around a lot longer than I have had a podcast, mm -hmm. right? And I'm doing a podcast because it's so interesting to me, this mystery, and I, I want to learn more. It looks really interesting from the outside, you know, when you're kind of on the outside looking in. The, the thing, though, is that for me, this is this is passion. I want to know the truth about this. And every time I do a show and every case I get to investigate, I get just a little bit closer to that truth. I don't know what the ultimate truth is, but I, I think it's really willful ignorance to ignore the fact that there are machines in our sky that we do not possess the ability to operate. 
That's the bottom line. And they've been here uh, so much longer than, than, than maybe even radio, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there are reports going back to the time of, uh, of Christopher Columbus. And uh, depending on uh, which sources you believe, maybe even going all the way back to the Bible or even the, uh, the ancient Greeks. What have we seen of late in terms of UFO whistleblowers? And again, if people are just uh, tuning in, we're talking with Jeremy Corbell. He did a terrific documentary about Bob Lazar, one of the original Area 51 whistleblowers. But he's far from the only UFO whistleblower, isn't he, Jeremy? Yeah, that's right. So it's a really interesting time. And again, for, for maybe your, your listeners that are, that are not tuned into this, we had the, the National Defense Authorization Act that was signed for 2023. And in that budgeting, in, in that act, there was this whole section that was created for what they call UFO whistleblowers. And, and it's people that have been working in, these, in the capacity of reverse engineering that can come forward and, and break their NDAs and tell what they have been doing. And I happen to personally know and have been in communication with numerous individuals who have been part of these programs who have already stepped forward within the mechanisms of our government to testify and, and verify that these exploitation programs of non-terrestrial craft, that they do exist and that people have been working in silence all the way back, I got to be honest, since the 40s, and that's what's so interesting, is that there was once a time when this needed to be held secret, needed to be held quiet because we weren't sure what was going on and we didn't know how to, to reverse engineer these. And if somebody else figured it out, before America, before us, we had a big problem. So it was classified at a greater risk, a greater security risk than even our atomic program. But now we're living in a different era. We're living in a, in a new age where it has been admitted that UFOs are real. They've said the basics, but now we want to know how much do we know? How long have we known it? Have we been successful in any way at reverse engineering these craft? And I know it's got to sound wild to people that, that haven't really been paying attention about this, but it is in fact true that we have programs to reverse engineer these craft of unknown origin, and we've had them for a long time, and now we have these whistleblower acts that essentially protect people who can come forward and tell what they've been involved in. What are we seeing on the horizon in terms of congressional hearings on this subject? We had the one set of hearings last year that got a lot of attention. Some people found them somewhat disappointing. I'm curious as to your impression of those hearings and if you know what we can look forward to from Congress in the future. I absolutely do. And it's, it's, it's really a really interesting time. So you talk about the initial congressional hearings on UFOs, and, and we hadn't had any in over 50 years. And it was kind of shocking. We had these congressional hearings. Everybody was asking about the UFO topic. And, and we kind of got this sleight of hand. Remember, it was the intelligence committees that were dealing with this. So we didn't get a straight answer. In, in fact, I would argue there was a lot of obfuscation. Like they showed one video that I obtained and released to the public. Mm. They didn't show the other eight pieces of corroborative visual evidence from this encounter series that happened in 2019 when our military was swarmed with over 100 UFOs, 10 of our warships. So that congressional hearing was great in one sense because they started talking about UFOs at that level. However, we got the total sleight of hand. So now the next step is this, having pilots, firsthand witnesses to these unique craft like Commander David Fravor, 
Commander Chad Underwood, people that filmed and chased the Tic Tac UFO in 2004 off the West Coast for our military. Having these types of people testify in front of Congress to like an oversight committee, that would be exceptional. And I can tell you right now with 100% certainty that that is happening. I know for a fact I'm involved with that. It is happening. Well, that's certainly exciting. Do you know the timetable for that? Oh, man, I never guess even when my, you know, electric coffee pot's going to go off. So I'm not going to make a prediction, but, you know, it, it's it's a matter of months. All right. That's we'll, it. We'll keep an eye on that. You alluded to the fact earlier that these objects that are being recorded and that you've published and that other people have published are not Chinese. Uh, they're not Russian. How do we know uh, that they're not Chinese? Certainly the uh, Chinese spy balloon got a lot of attention recently and tensions of, with Russia have been escalating. What can you say to the public to assure them that the, the air, flying aircraft that we're seeing aren't, in fact, uh, Chinese in nature or some other foreign government? Yeah, so so my understanding of that comes directly from the agencies that that I sometimes communicate with uh, about this. So we have eliminated for sure that these were our black projects, meaning U.S. black projects. And if we take like one example, because for sure there's always reconnaissance balloons that, you know, those have been going for over 40 years over the United States. That's nothing new. The Chinese reconnaissance balloons, that's nothing new. What we're talking about are machines that can do things that are outside of our understanding of reactionary propulsion, things that can move at 90 degree angles at 12,000 miles an hour, things that can drop from above 80,000 feet down to sea level like that snap of a finger, right? These are technologies that seem to defy our known understanding of physics, like moving faster than the speed of sound without a sonic boom. This is something that people have talked about. Former head of the CIA talked about this. This is fact. Things are doing this. So how do we eliminate that it's our technology? Well, that's pretty easy. They, they go and they ask around. There are full-on investigations for some of these cases. Now, how do we eliminate it's another nation's technology, another industrialized nation like Russia, like China? Because that would be quite scary if there was some sort of sure. technology that was so far advanced. So it is my understanding that this has been completely ruled out, that they have looked at the capabilities, the battery lives, the, just the, the fingerprint of technological development in other nations. Nobody's got this. So whose are they? It's some unknown nation? We don't know. That's the thing. Talking with Jeremy Corbell. Jeremy, you're always so on top of things, so on the cutting edge when it comes to this subject. Can you give our listeners a little bit of a preview of what you're working on next? What sort of – give us a little hint anyway about what you're working on next. (laughs) Well, you can look forward to the next 10 months. I'm about two months into this podcast, Weaponized, and it's been really fun. And we've dropped a few atomic bombs. If you've been watching the the Mosul Orb and the Baghdad Phantom, which was leaked footage from the Air Force to me of something that moves without a reactionary propulsion system. So you can expect more of that. And hopefully we work towards a crescendo. So over the next 10 months, as I do this show, Weaponized, you're going to see more and more interviews and then more and more pieces of video and photographic evidence that our military 
has captured of what we call UFOs, these unknowns. That's what you can expect. All right. Uh, Jeremy Corbell, it is always a treat to talk with you. I hope people check out your uh, podcast, Weaponized. There's simply uh, nothing like it in terms of what anybody is doing. Uh, They should also search for your uh, YouTube channel. There's always a lot of great, interesting stuff on there as well. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Jeremy. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for covering this, Frank. And look, it's a really exciting time, and I don't really know what's up, but I'm fighting to find out. So, you know, keep your eyes open, man. It's going to get really interesting in the next 10 months. Thank you. We'll be uh, watching with bated breath. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. If you ever want to know what kind of music we play on this show, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and uh, search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. And, um, you know, somebody commented yesterday, oh, does anybody care what kind of music you play? It's just a talk show? Well, I think they do. But if if you do, feel free to tell that person that you do. If not, then uh, you don't have to read it. But I think a lot of people are curious about what some of the artists are and uh, what some of the song titles all happen to be. You know what's annoying? On Friday, we went to my dad's to color Easter eggs. And for whatever reason, we had a good time. We had dinner there. Uh, For whatever reason, they were out of the standard Easter egg coloring material that you would just dip the thing. You know, you put it on a little tin, little egg holder, the hard-boiled egg. And then you would dip it into the dye, and then maybe you'd dip another side into a color. Well, they only had this dye, this Easter egg coloring kit, where you put the egg in a plastic bag, and you throw a few squirts of dye in the plastic bag, and you shake the egg in the bag. It's like almost egg shake and bake. And And so I got some green dye on my, under my fingernail on Friday. And I've taken 
at least four showers since then. And my fingernail is still green. My mother was over on Sunday or Saturday. She said, what What happened to your finger? She thought I was getting gangrene or something. I have a big meeting today with our bosses. They're going to be staring at this green finger that I have. It looks like I'm, uh, I'm, I have a, 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 the bastard uh, stepchild of the Incredible Hulk here. It's really weird looking. I don't get it at all. Simon, James, and the rest of you that are holding, we'll get to you after the top of the hour. If you want to be heard on uh, any subject that we're talking about, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population and be sure to get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. saying things that aren't meant to be offensive and having them lose their jobs because of it. I'm just so done with it. I just there's no giving anybody the benefit of the doubt on anything except at our network. Honestly, I think if uh, one of the talk show hosts here or even a contributor to the Red Apple Audio Network said something that they didn't mean to be offensive, that people found offensive. I don't think I don't think uh, our leadership would would look for any penalization of them. But the same cannot be said at WLBT in the state of Mississippi. A Mississippi morning news anchor appears to be out of a job after saying a popular Snoop Dogg phrase, and we get some clarification on that. Apparently that is the name he's using these days. It is Snoop Dogg. It is not Snoop Doggy Dog. It is not Snoop Lion. It is not Snoop. It is simply Snoop Dogg. After saying uh, a popular Snoop Dogg phrase on air earlier this month, Barbie Bassett has not returned to the anchor desk at NBC affiliate WLBT since the March 8th broadcast and is no longer listed as a member of the news team on the station's website. Um, they, the New York Post had reached out to WLBT for comment to find out, does this woman still work there? When it's very clear that she doesn't. She said the... Uh, 
Ted Fortenberry, the station's regional vice president and general manager, told the New York Post in an emailed statement, as I'm sure you can understand, the WLBT is unable to comment on personnel matters, which obviously if she still worked there, they would just say she still works there. She clearly doesn't. So the gaffe, if it's even a gaffe, was made during a discussion about Snoop Dogg's latest addition to his California wine line. And this is what Barbie Bassett said. Let me warn you, you're about to hear a phrase that some people find offensive that I think is just silly if you need to tune out for three seconds. Okay, you've been warned. And don't say I didn't warn you. Here's Barbie Bassett on WLBT in Mississippi. Before we know it, she'd have a Snoop Dogg tattoo on her shoulder. A shizzle, my nizzle. <laughs> I'm telling you. Julie, what do you think about that? Huh. Huh, she says. <laughs> there you go. That four seconds, less than that, of her saying, faux shizzle, my nizzle, has apparently cost her her job. Why? Well, if you're like me, I've heard the term for shizzle my nizzle, but I never really even knew what it meant. I never really uh, had a need to use the term. So um, if you go to dictionary.com, what does fizz- what does faux shizzle my nizzle mean? According to dictionary.com, it's a slang way to say this is from that website, dictionary.com. For sure, my friend. It was popularized as a catchphrase of the rapper Snoop Dogg and is meant as a playful way to express affirmation. Now, if you go to Urban Dictionary, they have a little bit of a different explanation for this. They say that it's another way of saying, for sure, my N-word. And that's what is upsetting some people. They're saying, we don't want to be called your N-word If you're not black. And of course, the news anchor is white here. Um, By the way, I do want to mention Barbie Bassett has a history of using this word. She tweeted the phrase in 2011. Uh, This woman, by the way, is the first chief meteorologist in WLBT history. She's a meteorologist. Okay. On a silly morning show where they have cocktails and banter and laugh. It's like a local version of the Today Show. The Mississippi native apologized in October of 2022 after referencing a black reporter's grandmammy on air. So people are saying she does have a history of using racially incendiary rhetoric. She said grandmammy, and she tweeted this phrase, for shizzle my nizzle, back in 2011, I have to say, this is the stupidest thing that I've seen since yesterday, because this is just bizarre. She was not calling anyone nizzle. I I doubt whether she knew that some people use the term nizzle to mean the N-word. It's not intentional. Uh, She's not at all making... Uh, she's not at all trying to be insulting or offensive. And even Charlemagne the God, 
on his, on his Twitter and on his show, The Breakfast Club, defended her. Now, Charlemagne the God is black. He's also probably the leading black talk radio host in the entire country. He's so powerful and so prominent. Even Biden, when Biden was running for president, went on. Biden did no interviews. He went on The Breakfast Club with Charlemagne the God. That's the kind of audience that he commands. Even he said, I don't think she should have been fired for that. She, he, he said, she might not even know what nizzle means, yo. Come on, like, stop. That's not a reason to fire that woman. Some social media users have come to Bassett's defense, while others say it's not appropriate for a white woman to say that phrase. This is a woman who um, graduated from Mississippi College 30 years ago, earned a Master of Science degree from Mississippi State, Mississippi State with a concentration in broadcast meteorology, and she currently finds herself out of a job for, as they were discussing Snoop Dogg, quoting a Snoop Dogg lyric. A couple of things here. And if you want to comment on this, you're welcome to. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. One, if she were black... Do you think she would have been fired? Uh, I have a pretty strong feeling that the answer to that is no. Two, was she wrong to use this phrase? I have to say, I don't think so. I understand that we as a society have decided we don't want the N-word said on television, on radio. Okay. Are we really saying we are now banning any... Any rapper's reference to the N-word, even if it's changed to another word? what You know, I got a notebook in front of me. That's an N-word. If I start using the term notebook as my way of referring to the N-word, should people stop saying notebook? I mean, it's so stupid. And this woman's unemployed for it? No, I don't care about Barbie Bassett. I mean, I feel bad that she's unemployed. I care about the culture and society and where we are that we have now added another phrase that, by the way, the rapper who coined has made tens of millions of dollars using the actual N-word not a concealant of the N-word, and performed at the Super Bowl last year, which has a lot of black and white viewers. Nobody canceled him. He's more popular than ever. He's doing product endorsements. He's everywhere. He's in movies. He's got record deals. He's everywhere. And yet Barbie Bassett quotes one of his songs in a story talking about him for three seconds, and she's fired? 800 before we know it, she'd have a Snoop Dogg tattoo on her shoulder. A shizzle, my nizzle. <laughs> I'm telling you. Julie, what do you think about that? Huh. huh she says. <laughs> I can't believe what is going on here. 800-848-9222. We're going to go through the mail in a little while. If you want to send some email and uh, add your voice to the number of people that whose correspondence we are going to read a little bit later this hour. You can do so by emailing me at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Meantime, let me say hello to Simon in Brooklyn. Hello, Simon. Yeah, Frankie, yes. Listen, we're living in a very, very different kind of world now. We have the social media took over everything and 
you know, even when it comes to the Jewish folks or black folks, it's everything, everyone's so sensitive when it comes to these words. And um, unfortunately, that's how it is. It's, it's a society has changed. So, um, some, you know, I don't, I don't think they have better leadership by, um, you know, they could say things and we cannot say, but it, it is what it is with the BLM thing and everything else. Well, so, uh, Simon, I think that is so sad. Right. I have never. I I just I just I just hate this. Right. I just hate this idea that it seems to be we live in a place where folks are rushing to be offended or they're rushing to find something that someone else said as an excuse for for canceling them. I mean, to me, I think we should be celebrating um, free expression. I think we should be celebrating conversation. I think we should be celebrating all different aspects of of culture. It, and to, it has to be the, the, the faith have to come together. Into faith have to bring us all together. All cultures together, and that's the only way I think it's going to work. Yeah, uh, thank you. We all sit together and speak it over a dinner meal or any people meeting together. Thanks, uh, Simon. Appreciate it. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two. 22. That's 800-848-9222. James is in Pennsylvania. Hello, James. Hi, Frank. It's the ex-practical nurse. Uh, I'm on the lover accident on I-70. Do you know where that is? Uh, you, uh, you know, James, I have to be honest. I did not hear a word that you said after the words, hi, Frank. I said I'm on the lover exit of I-70. Do you know where that is? I think so. I, I have some family that lives in uh, Pennsylvania. I've driven all over getting lost. The police just went past my house. I waved at them. Well, I hopefully they say, weren't looking for you. No, they know me. Anyways, I'm an old nurse. They know me. Anyways, the thing is, down in Mississippi, that storm that went through there, that windstorm, it was terrible. And I experienced something like that in Pittsburgh at the amusement park, amusement park called Kennywood. A wind shear come and it ripped them right out of the, out of the chair. It was called the Whip Amusement Ride, and it ripped them right out of the chair. Wind shear. So, anyways, as a nurse, I observed and I documented things, and I think you're sick as your secrets because when that weather balloon UFO weather balloon from the Chinese went over our country, the weather went down to 20 below zero, and then the next day it went up to 80. They are controlling the weather. They have taken over the world, the Chinese with the weather, and you, you don't want to admit it. You're sick of your secrets, but that is the story, period. Well, if it was something that I didn't want to admit, why would I not want to admit it? I don't know. Well, don't there's you car think— five, there's, there's car 5793, the Charleroi Borough Police, regional police. They just went by. They're as crooked as a rusty nail. All right. Well, I, I have uh, I don't know about what's going on in that specific police department. Thank you, James. Uh, but uh, I do I do have a lot of respect for the police wherever they happen to be, and uh, I give them a lot of credit. They're doing a tough job. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Greg is in New Jersey. Hello, Greg. Yeah. Hello. I I I, I just woke up and. On the station, I listen to it a lot. Great station, Thank great you. people. Thank you. Um, you know, all of this bending over backwards for black people. I, I think you know a lot of white people are getting sick of it. I, I certainly am. I but mean, Greg, but I understand Greg, I, I, the pendulum really, had to swing a Greg, certain way. I don't really. I think it's coming back. Yeah, I, I, Greg. Thank you. You know, I, I don't really think this is a case of bending over black backwards for black people. I, I really don't. 
I think this is a station doing one of two things. I think there was some a woman that worked there, and I know nothing. I didn't know who she was before yesterday. I, I think this was a situation where they were looking to get rid of her for some other reason, and then this happened, and they said, ooh, here's our excuse. We can use this as our opportunity to get rid of her. Or they're overreacting in terms of um, being fearful of some sort of backlash. But I don't think there were scores of black people protesting outside of WLBT as if this was the media equivalent of the George Floyd case. I don't think I don't think you're bending over backwards for black people at all. You you know almost everybody that I hear using the N-word these days, and I'm not talking nizzle, I'm talking the actual N-word, happens to be black. So I don't I can't I think a lot of common sense black people probably would view the situation the way Charlemagne the God did, which is that this is so stupid to have a woman lose her job over this. 800-848-9222. Joe is in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Yes, hello, Frank. Good, good morning. I uh, I was thinking about a movie from the past that was probably used or mocking our hysteria over the N-word in our in our in the cultural war that brought us up brought us to this time. And if you remember Monty Python's Holy Grail. Mm-hmm, I do. And there was a scene there, the knights who say knee. Right, we are the knights who say knee. Right, and so that word, that knee is the first syllable of the N-word. And if you saw the reaction of the people in the movie, it's the same reaction you get from people if you use the N-word. And so, the, and so nobody could hear that word. Nobody could hear that word. And I think that was kind of a parody of the mockery of our hysteria of that word. I kind of think that that was a little note of piece, uh, portion of that movie was used that way. Yeah, uh, thank you, Joe. I appreciate it. I, I think I don't know what the writers had in mind, but I certainly, oh, right. I, I, I certainly I, think uh, that's a possibility. David in the Bronx, what do you think? Yeah, let me set some people straight here. Okay, this happened in Mississippi. Black people in Mississippi are very much like myself. We've heard that word used many, not that particular phrasing. But that word, the N-word, used many times in the way it was intended as a racial slur and an insult. And for that woman to use that word, even in that context, is highly insulting, inappropriate, and considering her use of the word grandmammy, which is another old phrase which shouldn't be coming from anybody, I think it, what happened to her, I have no problem with it. I've had enough of this. You know, you, you had a couple callers talk about bending over backwards for black people. Well, one guy. Listen. One guy said that. One guy. All right. Well, that's bad enough. Okay. This is New York, and there's people who think like that in New York. Let me tell you something, Frank. I heard that word, and, and your callers, I've had people tell me that this did not happen. I was called that word in first grade, along with a bunch of other racial slurs that I'm not going to repeat here. Yeah, okay? David. I, in Massapequa. I believe you, obviously, but I think there's a world of different. Now, the grandmammy thing is is bad, right? That doesn't uh, bode well for uh, Barbie Bassett's case. Uh, I will happily admit that. But um, isn't there just such a huge difference between someone, whether it's in the first grade or you know in in college or any other age, 
someone calling another person the N-word, the actual N-word, and a news anchor quoting a simple Snoop Dogg song after a song after a story about Snoop Dogg? Well, let me tell you something. I First of all, I don't approve of the N-word in any context, whether it be from a black person or anybody else in a song or in a movie or whatever. Okay, so let's start with that. But I would say, because I was listening to some song today that came up, and the woman who was singing used the N-word, and she's black. I don't approve of that because a lot of black people haven't been called that word in the context it was intended. Most black people who have heard it have heard it from another black person because supposedly we've taken the word back. I don't agree with that. When I hear it, I cringe because of my experiences, and I suspect there's a lot of people in Mississippi who've had the same experience I've had. You have to remember where this was. If this had been in Harlem or something, I don't think it would have had the same reaction. Do you, the fact that it's in Mississippi, yeah. Do you equate the word nizzle to the actual N-word? Actually, until yesterday, I didn't because right. I had never heard – believe it or not, I had never heard that phrase yeah, before so yesterday. I, I had heard, I heard the phrase, phrase the but time. I had no idea what it meant. And again, if you go to dictionary.com, it says it just means friend. You have to go to Urban Dictionary to see that some people use it to mean my N-word. But given the fact that you would – if someone went out, uh, over to you and used the word nizzle, you wouldn't even have known to be offended. And I, if I would have used it, I wouldn't have known that it was potentially offensive to anybody. Don't you think that this should not be the nail in her coffin, David? All right. I'll, I'll concede this, Frank. If – she should have been interviewed by her employer – if they found out that she didn't mean – you know, she didn't know what the meaning of the word was, maybe a, a couple of days suspension or some type of, of, of uh, sensitivity training so that she wouldn't use the word grandmammy again and all that stuff because clearly this woman needs to understand the, the meaning of the words that she's using, okay? So should she have lost her job? Maybe not. All but right. Uh, very very reasonable. Because people like me – know the mean who, who would know the meaning of that word would be offended very like reasonable I, said, I didn't know the meaning of the word until yesterday very Thank reasonable you. david thank you 800-848-9222 uh we're doing the mail in a bit frank.morano at wabcradio.com if you want to jump on board russell is in florida hello russell I love this. This is from Mars Attacks, I think. I love Mars Attacks. Wow. Um, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Mars Attacks. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It has the greatest cast of any movie maybe ever. But they discover that the, the key to beating the aliens is, well, I don't want to spoil the, actually, it's a ridiculous movie. I'm not spoiling anything. Um, they discover that the key to defeating the alien is to play the music of Slim Whitman. And that was one of those movies that I thought was silly when I saw it uh, 25 years ago, whenever it came out. But I think I would enjoy it more now. If for no other reason than we don't really see Jack Nicholson in anything anymore. So to see him acting as the president, it's really it's really kind of fun. And like I said, everybody is in that movie. Not just Jack Nicholson. 
Everybody is in it. Uh, Martin Short, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, I mean, y- you name it. it. I mean, it's a star-studded cast. Jim Brown, it, it goes on and on. A lengthy list of uh, famous people in that picture. Tom is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yeah, hiya, Frank. Yeah. The, uh, the evil N-word uh, started with the slave trade in the country called Niger in Africa. If you look at the map of Africa, you have Nigeria, but if you go north, uh, east of Nigeria, up on the continent in the middle, you would see that there's a country called Niger. And that was the place where where people were grabbed for slavery. Uh, the Arabs used to come down and grab people for the trade. I guarantee you that by so the end of this phone call, we will be no closer to knowing Tom's opinion about whether it was appropriate or inappropriate for individual this woman to be fired. I guarantee you. I will bet you probably said I any, Niger, every dollar Niger, I own versus every dollar you, you have you are, that we will Niger. never find out his opinion That's how that on this. evolved. Wow. All right, so it sounds like uh, you uh, you agree that she should not have been fired, Tom. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Jimmy is in Rhinebeck. Hello, Jimmy. Hey, great show, man. Thank you. I was thinking when you were talking about the N-word that there's words I would love to never hear again, like murder, rape, pedophile. And I thought those are the, wor- the words themselves. You know, the N-word is harmful and it's bad, but there's words that are much worse, you know? Well, I, I understand why people are are offended by it. Uh, I and and the context in which it was used. In general, though, I I think we should avoid making any word unusable. You know, there are words I don't use. Right. I, I my I don't think my wife has ever heard me use profanity. Right? I don't use I don't use profanity. Now, I, I am not against, I, but that doesn't mean I I think that people should be uh, canceled for using profanity. I I the, a lot of the words that you use, I think they're horrible words to describe horrible acts, but I don't think uh, that not not using those words makes all those acts go away. I'd rather no. work on making murder go away That's rather what I'm talking than about. rather than making the word murder go away. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's just the way it's described. It's just an adjective. Yeah. Yeah. Jimmy, thank you. Appreciate that. Uh lastly, Ina is in Manhattan. Hello, Ina. Hello, Mr. Frank. How are you tonight? I- I'm, uh, I'm doing just fine. Thank you. I'm glad I'm glad you're well yes. as well. I hope I hope your little beautiful son is doing okay. He's so bright. Thank you. Thank you well, very much. I I is the first I'm 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 not the first I'm hearing this word because I heard it from Snoop Doggy Dog, but I didn't know the meaning of it. So now I'm gonna start use it because I have a niece. She's giving me a hard time and that's what I'm gonna call her. <laughs> All right, well I'll She's good. so bad. Good thing you're not a news anchor, Ina. We don't want to see you fired. Thank you for the call there, Ina. All right, we're going to go through the mail momentarily. Uh, if you want to get in some written correspondence, you're welcome to. Frank.Morano at uh, com. That's Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at com. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's... 
The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Snoop Dogg, the man behind all the controversy. Uh, whatever. Whatever. All right. Uh, a lot of you have written in in many different forms. And now is your opportunity to be heard as we go through. begin with uh, email. Um, Frank, who among famous people on the planet is the smartest in your opinion? How do I know this? And who among the famous apparently is the dumbest? Name one, two, or three, please. All right. Well, I'm not going to add, I'm not going to answer the question about the dumbest uh, because it's just, it, it's, it's just mean, right? It's just mean, number one. And, um, I don't think there's a much value served in me saying that somebody else is dumb. Okay. That being said, um, and the other thing is, just because you're not book smart, it doesn't mean you're not intelligent in other areas. You can be you can be somebody that's that didn't get a good SAT score. But you you can also be someone that is very bright in other areas. Okay, let's talk about the smartest celebrities. James Woods, he has, he, I think he might have gotten a 1600 on his SATs. James Woods has an IQ which is in the genius level. Ashton Kutcher, he anticipated acceptances to both MIT and Purdue to study engineering. Cindy Crawford studied chemical engineering on scholarship at Northwestern. Conan O'Brien, a real history buff, you could tell by some of the things he says from time to time, graduated magnum cum laude from Harvard. David Duchovny attended not one but two Ivy League schools. And then the last one that I'll mention is Mayim Bialik. 
who is also one of the hosts of Jeopardy these days. She played a neuroscientist on The Big Bang. She was also Blossom. Uh, she was also a neuroscientist in real life. So those are my top five. Good question, though, I must say. All right, this is a question. This was sent in via email. No name. Uh, Frank, if you were to pick, if you were to assign wrestlers for every member of the WABC lineup, who would it be? Well, this is interesting, and I've actually thought about this because someone called and asked this question on Ask Frank Anything maybe about a year ago, and I wasn't pleased with my answer, and I didn't fill out the whole lineup. So I actually did make some notes on this recently, and this is what I've come up with. Not a perfect list, but it's it's the list that we have. Um, Sid Rosenberg is Bret Hart. Sid Rosenberg is Bret Hart because he spends a lot of time in the gym, just as Bret Hart did. Um, Sid, I believe, has admitted at some point that he took steroids, just as Bret Hart had done. Bret Hart came from, it was a real wrestler's wrestler. Sid is a real radio guy's radio guy. He's a solid performer. Bret Hart was part of a very successful tag team in the Hart Foundation, won the World uh, Tag Team Championship multiple times, and was part of a a great stable, and then had a very successful solo career, winning all sorts of uh, championships as a solo artist. And now Sid Rosenberg has kind of done the same thing. He was in a partnership that did very well, and part of that I'm a stable, which did very well. And now he's doing very well and winning championships radio-wise as a solo person. Brian Kilmeade is either, I think he's Arn Anderson. I couldn't come up with a perfect example for for Brian Kilmeade, but I think he, he's Arn Anderson just because he's the hardest-working guy that there is. The guy works nonstop, and, so, and that's what Arn Anderson did. He was a worker's worker. He was solid. He wasn't flashy for the sake of being flashy. He wasn't uh, wearing costumes or having some gimmick that got him a lot of attention. He was just himself. And he would just put in the hours and put in the work and do whatever it it took to win. And that's what Brian Kilmeade does. Curtis Sliwa is The Undertaker. I mean, top of his game, wrestling main events for 30 years. All right, 30 years straight. Who else in wrestling has done that but The Undertaker? The level of ratings excellence and revenue excellence that Curtis Lewa has had for three decades, it's um, its like it, the only comparison, I think, is The Undertaker. I'm like the big dog, the German Shepherd. Greg Kelly, I said, was... Um, I'm not sure why I made this note. I don't remember what aspect of it made me say this, but I said that he was... Um, Randy Savage, but uh, he could also be Barry Windham. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't have a good one for Greg Kelly. Uh, oh, you know. Oh, Randy Savage, a second generation wrestler, right? Greg Kelly is the son of former police commissioner Ray Kelly, uh, but he has achieved a lot of great things media wise on his own in both TV and radio. He could be a good guy. He could be a bad guy. Kind of can can play both sides of that angle. Rudy Giuliani is a legend, 
And we all know uh, that, uh, especially pre-Larry Zbysko, there's only one living legend, and that's Bruno Sammartino. Rudy Giuliani is Bruno Sammartino. The fact that they're both Italian, so be it. Uh, James Golden, and uh, maybe I'm guilty of playing the race card here, but I, I guess I am. James Golden is uh, is Booker T. He was another guy. First of all, there were so few black championship wrestlers back in the day, back when I watched regularly. Booker T was one. And another guy, he was part of a partnership, part of a stable. In the case of Booker T, it was Harlem Heat. In the case of James Golden, it was the Rush Limbaugh show. And now here he is doing his thing. John Katsimatidis, that's very easy. Um, he's Mr. McMahon. Uh, Lydia Serrani, who I made, the, she was still working there at the time that I made this list. She is sensational Sherry. Uh, Mark Levin is Triple H, just an icon. Uh, Bill O'Reilly is a main eventer's main eventer and has been for many years. I think Bill O'Reilly is Hulk Hogan. Um, Rita Cosby, again, I, there weren't a lot of great female wrestlers that I could pick from. But I think Rita Cosby is Medusa slash Alundra Blaze. That's the same person. She, they're both blonde. They're both very nice. They're both very, very talkative. And they both seemed very friendly. Um, Dominic Carter I have as Barry Windham, actually. Uh, Dominic Carter, a very solid performer, can do anything. You put him on at midnight, he delivers. Put him on on the weekend, he delivers. Put him on in the middle of the day, he delivers. Put him on in the morning, he delivers. Joe Piscopo, for his musical abilities, is the honky-tonk man. Um, I have Bernie McGurk as as Owen Hart, because taken from us way too soon, and part of that Hart family that, that Sid Rosenberg also came from. And uh, Noam Layden, I have as, um, I have him as Tony Schiavone, but I could see him as being a number of other kind of straight-laced, non-gimmicky announcers as well. And then for myself, there's a lot of people that I could pick for myself, but I think the best analogy for me was was Chris Jericho. And uh, really just a solid performer that all of the other people in radio recognize as a solid performer. So that's what I have in terms of that list. Uh, Matt Blaze, what do you make of my list there? Um, I don't agree with Bill O'Reilly as Hulk Hogan, and I don't agree with Bernie as Owen Who Hart. would you make those guys? Uh, Bernie, uh, I'd have to think about it. Bernie was more like a Bob Backlund. He was definitely more than Owen Hart. Because Owen Hart, he, he was a good wrestler, but they always kind of looked at him as he's Brett's little brother. Well, I and think I know, Bernie got a, a lot of that same disrespect. Oh, he's Imus's producer. All right. Well, I, that, I, that I do. True. And, that um, is true. As, and, uh, who would you make, uh, who would you make, um, O'Reilly? Oh. And he's also the same height as Hogan. O'Reilly, main eventer, I agree with that. Uh, maybe Tully Blanchard. No way! Tully Blanchard never won a world championship. O'Reilly was number one in cable news for 17 years. On WABC, we look at the streaming numbers. That segment he does on Bernie and Sid, it's the highest rated segment all right. in all of WABC. Ric Flair? Is maybe. Flair? Yeah, but is he as flashy as Flair? I, I don't know. You know, O'Reilly's out there praising how to sit money saving tips. Ric Flair's not doing that. He's throwing away hundred dollar bills. But IRS? okay, you think about that. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I think Hulk Hogan is that's the best like, analogy. Like a Stone Cold. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But he, Stone Cold didn't have that longevity that O'Reilly has. All right, 
Jay writes, um, hey, Frank, love you and your crew, but please make the crew stop the stupid darker side of midnight. <laughs> Last episode, I can't repeat a lot of this stuff. Last episode, blanking <laughs> chicks, masturbation, another word that begins with F, I don't even know what he's trying to say here, and other stupid nonsense. Truthfully, it completely defames your brand having these otherwise probably decent kids act like ninnies while representing you. Please make them stop. Cheers and love to Rachel Carmine. Well, thank you, Jay. A <laughs> um, couple of things here. So I, and I, I actually got another similar email about this. One, a lot of people like that darker side of midnight. So it is gaining quite a following in the podcast world. So it might not be your cup of tea, but don't listen to it. I mean, I'm certainly producing enough content that you really don't need to listen to much else. But if, if it's not your cup of tea, don't listen to it. A lot of people do like it. Um, two, I have not re- I have not listened to the darker side of midnight for a few reasons. One, because uh, let's say it is absolutely ridiculous and should be shut down. I would like to be able to answer management with a straight face that I have never heard a word of what goes on there and and be able to say with credibility, oh, I have no idea what's going on there, which is true. The other thing is, uh, I don't if they, these guys know that I'm listening, maybe they'll be more guarded with the things that they say. And uh, I don't want to hinder their creative uh, juices at all because they're worried that I might not be uh, that I might be listening and they might, I might be offended by something that they say. Uh, so I want to give them a lot of freedom. So I have no idea what's going on on the darker side of midnight. I probably wouldn't like it, but more power to them. Whatever. Uh, I, I'm not I'm not the least bit offended. Joel writes. Hi, Frank. I absolutely agree with you about the decay of the political system and the absurdity of having two parties. I've been saying this my entire adult life. I consider myself a libertarian, and I think you're probably closest to the Libertarian Party as well. I think middle America is mostly libertarian at heart. They just don't get the option of listening to a libertarian on stage debating, and they're constantly being told it'll be either a Rebloodlican or a Democrat. It's all rigged by uh, requiring a 15% support in order to get into the debates, but you can get support if you don't debate. Anyway, love your show, and I listen every single day to the entire show. I usually join late and listen to the podcast for the rest. Keep it up. It's the only show where I can can stand for more than two minutes. Thank you, Joel. Um, Another person writes, Frank, uh, this was in the subject of Dr. Turi. What a waste of your your and most listeners' precious time. Frank, do you notice how the women callers suddenly came out of the woodwork when it's astrology? Every caller, four of them, was a female. And women love attention. Some even if they have to get a hard slap on their face. What? Most men, stay away from this guy, ladies. Most men don't bother about astrology. No intelligent person should. Uh, Even most women don't really believe in it. It's the attention that they're getting as the focus is on them that they enjoy. And do you notice how these fakers always say good things to their clients? Do you notice how the subjects always agree with whatever the readers say? And, of course, do you notice that if you open the newspaper and read anyone else's horoscope, it could apply to you and vice versa? Uh, Sincerely, unnamed. Uh, Joe writes, hey, Frank, I often meet clients in their homes, Asian clients, Always ask for shoes off. Since COVID, others have also. I never liked taking my shoes off and now refuse 
because no matter how much they clean, there's still bacteria and fungus and whatever else on the floors. My podiatrist said athlete's foot and nail fungus is on all these floors. I, for one, have no desire to get that on my socks and later in my shoes, but I have a great solution. Cheap medical booties that go over shoes. Come on. This is getting far too carried away. I carry them in my briefcase and whip a fresh pair out when requested to take off my shoes. Actually, the requesters should offer these booties that cost pennies because I also don't want peeps who may have foot fungus on their socks from their shoes walking on my floor spreading it around. Joe, I, I mean, I am not nearly as worried about this stuff as, as, you, as you seem to be. David writes, yes, we need political diversity. We need those who identify as pan-political, must stand up for our rights and protest against the systemically racist political system that discriminates against us. I think the reason why we don't have more people that identify as independent might be because the Democrats versus Republicans political circus is so ingrained into us. We need someone to wake us up to help us realize that there's more to politics than just two parties. I agree with uh, just about everything on that front. Um, Let's see. Peter writes, Hi, Frank. Uh, Glad to hear you're having Dr. Turi on. Your listeners will be impressed when they learn that he predicted Trump's current legal and marital problems a long time ago. Also, remember to ask him what is happening with the Supreme Court in the near future. Your show is very interesting. Stay safe, Peter. Well, that's very nice. Meantime, on the other hand, Spike writes... You are made to sound like a moron by Curtis and Avery. All right. Thank you, Spike. He adds further, William Shatner infatuation, WTF, (laughs) are you nuts? I mean, all right, whatever. Um, And then uh, let me go to the world of Facebook where there are a number of people messaging in. I I always have a tough time with these Facebook messages. It's not very user-friendly. All right. Ate a poppy seed, this is from Todd. Todd writes, ate a poppy seed bagel in the morning. Failed my drug test in the afternoon working for Exxon Mobil. Interesting. Uh, Robert writes, uh, Frank, come on, Hawaii last in getting good doctors because the environment is so ideal. Nobody gets sick there. Thank you, Frank, for your comment tonight about the Holocaust as the most shameful event, etc., in world history. You are such a hero and a mensch. I'm not a hero at all. Heroes are the kind of people that run into burning buildings and risk their own lives to save people they don't know. Anthony Johnson writes, love your show and you are not alone. I'm an undercover conservative independent disguised as a Republican. But I'm more independent, especially since conservative ones can't vote in Maryland, let alone in primaries, and basically a wasted vote unless you're one of the two parties. And um, let me end with... uh, Alvaro sent me a way to buy more American flag ties. Thank you, Alvaro. None of them are quite the tie that I I had. Um, I mentioned last week that I lost an American flag necktie about four years ago and it still just grates me uh that that uh, that that occurred and uh let's do one last one now nah, i guess that's i think that's a a good um a good means of of ending it uh that slams the lid on this edition of Another letter from 
other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is Red River Rock by uh, Johnny and the Hurricanes. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. We'll uh, get to your calls in just a moment. 800-848-9222. Very excited about what we have coming up next hour. We have uh, a foreign policy panel par excellence. Uh, my friend Joseph Ween is in studio he is a Marine veteran. He fought in the first Persian Gulf War. And then he also served in the Middle East in Afghanistan and I believe Iraq as well as a civilian contractor during the most recent wars in those countries. We have Alan Tonelson, who's been a regular guest on this show. And uh, he is one of the best writers on foreign policy, economics, technology, you name it. He's going to join us. And... Joining us from the U.K., we have the former British ambassador from the U.K. to Syria, Ambassador Peter Ford. A lot of folks had been wondering why we were not, uh, why we were not having um, a discussion about the Syria situation yesterday. It's because I knew that we were doing this panel today, and I wanted to save it for everybody to comment on it. I'm looking forward to that. Now, um, yesterday was my wife's birthday. On Sunday, it was my Uncle Steve's birthday. The week before, we went to dinner, my uncle, my wife, my mom, and everybody's significant others, to celebrate both of their birthdays. And my Uncle Steve gave my wife a card, a birthday card. And my wife spent most of the dinner chasing our son around the restaurant. He had to go into every room in the restaurant and make sure all the ceiling fans were turned on. Lo and behold, she left the birthday card at the restaurant. Turns out there was $100 in cash in there, and we called the restaurant. They hadn't seen the birthday card, so somebody probably swiped the birthday card. I don't know who steals a birthday card, what kind of person does that. We looked all over the place thinking maybe we stuck it in a bag or something. Lost it. But now that, you know, I know that we have this, uh, I know that Michael Steve spent $100 on Rachel's gift. I kind of feel the obligation to spend at least $100 on his gift. And he really likes, he's like me in that we both like Japanese cuisine and things like that. And I was at the liquor store last week and I could only find at best maybe a $20 bottle of sake. And I have to get him something else, but also now time is ticking away. So I, w- I took the sake with me today to work, and I was thinking of maybe swinging by his house on my way home and dropping it off there, although I forgot to take a birthday card, so I'll have to pick up a birthday card. But I um, I feel like I should get him something else, and I don't know what to get him. But uh, So it's, uh, it's those birthdays are always very difficult to to navigate. Uh, Original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. 
Yeah, good morning, Frank. Real quick, uh, when you were saying that list about the wrestlers, did you include yourself in that? Yeah, I said uh, I, I think I would most likely be Chris Jericho. No, I think it would have been Mean Gene Oakland. You were, he's the, the best interviewer. He interviewed all those guys, and no one else could because they would have pounded them into the ground, but he just had a way of doing it. Well, maybe. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll take that one, uh, Rick. Thank you. And uh, Russ, well, Russ, I, I don't want to rush you, Russ. If you want to hold, you're welcome to. Uh, we have a tremendous midnight panel coming up in just a moment. Joseph Ween, Ambassador Peter Ford, and Alan Tonelson all straight ahead on the other side of midnight. Until then, now and always, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everyone. Any direction that you look, north, south, east, west, any country that you name, Syria, Iran, Iraq, China, Russia, Ukraine, they all have seemingly one thing in common, which is anybody with a brain is pretty worried about what's happening there especially the United States' involvement in what is happening there, or in some cases, depending on your perspective, a lack of involvement. So we have assembled a diverse panel of three experts who know American policy, who know the Middle East a little bit, who know where the rubber meets the road in terms of foreign policy as we take a tour around the world to some of the global hotspots and actually try to maybe even get some solutions as to how that we how we can solve some of these problems. Let me welcome a longtime public servant, a Marine veteran of the first Persian Gulf War and someone that was a civilian contractor in the most recent wars in the Middle East, my friend Joseph Ween. Hello, Joe. Good morning, Frank. How are you? Uh, now, were you in Iraq during the uh, while you were a civilian contractor as well? Yes. In spa- I spent the majority of my time in Iraq. Gotcha. Okay. Yes. Uh, also, very pleased to welcome back the uh, former British ambassador to both Bahrain and Syria and the co-chairman of the British Syrian Society, Ambassador Peter Ford. Ambassador, it's great. Great to have you back, sir. Thank you very much for having me, uh, Frank. And, and Ambassador, remind folks if they if they haven't heard our previous conversations, what is the British Syrian Society? Well, the situation in Syria at the moment is that they they're reeling from the recent earthquake, and this comes on top of uh, the terrible problems they're having coming out of their ten-year. No, but that that group, the group that you're co-chairman of, the British Syrian Society, oh, tell yeah. folks what that yeah. is. Yeah, well, to be to be accurate, I um, left that uh, some um, months ago because there's nothing 
that a group is allowed to do in this uh, wonderful free country of mine. We're not allowed to organize meetings, protests, uh, lobby, and therefore I'm no longer involved with that. There you go. You can't say my uh, record keeping isn't isn't up to date. Uh, Thank you, Ambassador. And very pleased to welcome Alan Tonelson, a trade expert, the founder of Reality Check. It's one of the go-to websites I check every day. It's a blog that covers economics, national security, technology, the areas where they intersect, and more. He's also a former advisor on trade issues to both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Alan, it's great to talk with you again. Again as well. Great to be back, Frank, and thanks for having me on. Absolutely, and uh, good luck to your New York Yankees when the uh, season begins uh, later this week, Alan. They're gonna... Three fifths of the starting <laughs> rotation hurt. I love it. <laughs> They're going to need the luck. That's why I said that. <laughs> oh my goodness! All right, let me begin with the Syria situation. Uh, there's no question that this conflict in Syria has escalated significantly following the attack uh, that killed a U.S. contractor. The Iran-backed militias launched a volley of rocket and drone attacks against coalition bases after American reprisals for a drone attack that killed a U.S. contractor and injured six other Americans. John Kirby, the spokesman for the Pentagon, was on Face the Nation Sunday talking about the situation in Sunday. This is what he said. We have acted with U.S. troops under fire. First of all, condolences. Our condolences to the family of the U.S. contractor, U.S. citizen who was killed. It's devastating news that no family uh, wants to ever get, uh, and we certainly agree with them. Uh, And we're obviously uh, hoping for a speedy recovery for those who are still suffering from the wounds. But uh, this was a a serious attack by these militant groups, and the president retaliated swiftly and boldly, significantly, uh, to deal with that. Um, You're right. There were some follow-up response from at least three from uh, these militant groups, Um, uh, not a lot of damage caused, although the one uh, one service member w- was injured. So uh, we're going to see where this goes. But the president in Ottawa made it very clear uh, that we're going to always act to defend our troops and our facilities. And here's what's not going to change, Margaret. The mission in ISIS is not going to change. We have under a thousand troops in Syria that are going after that network, which is, while greatly diminished, is still viable uh, and still critical. So we're going to stay at that task. So let's talk about the geopolitical implications here. So the violence that erupted in Syria really does highlight the risk and the potential for escalation at a time when both Washington and Tehran remain significantly at odds. Ambassador Ford, since Syria is very much in your uh, Ballywick. Let me begin with you. Give me your take on what we're seeing in terms of Syria right now. Well, you have to ask what do those U.S. why are those U.S. troops being put in danger? Uh, the, the official line says that they're there to uh, stop uh, ISIS. Well, ISIS was stopped a couple of years ago. Didn't anybody notice? Uh, that is baloney. That is just a cover story because Biden doesn't want to appear weak by withdrawing the forces. So eventually those forces are stuck there, sitting ducks for Iran or whoever, simply because Aunt Biden is afraid of losing face. Their presence is not helping U.S. security. On the contrary, they are uh, virtual hostages there. If uh, Israel, for example, wants to beat up on Iran, or the U.S. wants to beat up on Iran, those soldiers are going to get it in the neck. 
they are uh, hostages um, in America's own interest. They should be withdrawn pronto. Uh, Joe, since you were a civilian contractor and we're talking about the death of an American civilian contractor, which uh, which prompted this latest escalation. Give me your take on the geopolitical implications of what we're watching in terms of this violence in Syria, both sides. Well, I think, Frank, uh, it is a significant uh, event. Uh, Contractor, I don't know what the role exactly was. Was it a paramilitary role or a support role? However, a U.S. citizen was attacked, U.S. bases were attacked, whether we should be there or not. Like I used to say in Iraq, whether we should be there or not, we're there, right? So I think this is definitely a flex by Iran. I think that, you know, uh, significant things that just took place in the region is Saudi Arabia and Iran just restored their diplomatic ties, which might make them feel emboldened, if that's the right word. So uh, it's definitely a flex. You know, we've reintroduced ourselves into Iraq, which Iran was trying to basically make a puppet state for them. Uh, I definitely uh, this could lead, I think, just like what kind of been a proxy war in the Ukraine with Russia through these, which we saw once again in the war in in, in Iraq. Once again, we see a proxy war developing between these Iranian backed militias and the Iranian Hoods force with them trying to show you, hey, we can hit you at any time. Hey, we have a pres pres presence here. We're not going to allow, you know, the United States to creep in here and have another state like Iraq so close to us. Alan, uh, Alan Tonelson, give me your take on the geopolitical implications of uh, this latest violence in Syria. Frank, I think that this U.S. presence in Syria, this ongoing U.S. presence in Syria, which which clearly is not big enough to accomplish its mission of containing ISIS, but it's certainly big enough um, uh, to take casualties, um, is really a great example of the United States once again looking to foreign policy to solve a problem that is best handled through our own domestic policy. And what I mean by that is that we have to ask ourselves, why are we worried about ISIS or similar groups reviving in the first place? We're worried that they might reach the point once again where they can launch some kind of a 9-11-style attack on this country. If we're really worried about jihadist terrorism, we would recognize that the best way to deal with it is not keeping or sending more U.S. forces into the Middle East to chase down every single jihadist radical group that might spring up in that terminally dysfunctional region. And that's why they will keep springing up, but rather secure our own border, get serious about making sure that we can keep these folks out of this country. And that, of course, is one objective that we have miserably failed to meet since 9-11, frankly, with the partial exception of the Trump years. The um, So let's talk about that issue, uh, since both Ambassador Ford and uh, Alan uh, referenced the role of the U.S. military in Syria right now. Joe, since you actually served in the Middle East, in your opinion, there was recently a congressional resolution put forward by Matt Gates, a conservative Republican, and this was one of those rare resolutions. It was defeated to withdraw troops from Syria, but it was one of those rare resolutions where you saw the politicians on the far right, like the Freedom Caucus, folks and Matt Gates vote with politicians on the far left like the squad. 
at this point, given where we are as a country, do you think that we still need troops in Syria right now? So, Frank, I can only comment on it from an open source. I haven't spoke. I, I, uh, a few years ago, I had a bunch of friends in special forces that were in Iraq. Uh, uh, I mean, in Syria and Iraq. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's difficult. Once we created the vacuum by going there. Right. And I really think it was a big misstep for us to get involved in the war or actually start the war in Syria. I have uh, a firm belief and in information that I've come across. You know, we did stoke the flames there. We did. We did support certain groups there. Is a thousand troops enough to offset the balance of ISIS? Um, probably not. Are we spinning our wheels there? Possibly. But if we do have a withdrawal, are we going to open ourselves up to the same situation we had in Iraq when we couldn't uh, come to an agreement with the government? We pulled all the true, true troops out. You know, Iran came in, took over, set up a government. Um, it's difficult. I, as a guy who's been on the ground, should we bring our, our troops home? Yes. Is a thousand troops enough? I don't know what their mission is. It, it, it's difficult for me to say. In one sense, yes, I want them home. Right. Uh, uh, having seen war firsthand for many years of my life, I, I think it should be the last thing we do. But on the other side of the coin, once we're there, we're there. And how do you pull out without creating a vacuum? Uh, Alan Tonelson, uh, the answer to the question, do we still need troops in Syria? It sounds like you're a resounding no. Alan, I got gotcha. you. OK, there uh, you yes, yes. I do think that Joe has articulated uh, the kind of very specific dilemma that we face right now because we have made, made this commitment and withdrawing from these kinds of uh, uh, policies um, is certainly not cost-free. And at the same time, I really do think that we have to ask ourselves, again, why are we interested in this part of the world to begin with? And the main interest now, because we know that we can become energy independent once again whenever we choose, if we, if we would only turn this country's oil spigots back on, um, we no longer need the oil. We still need to be concerned about jihadist terrorism. But again, the best way to handle this is not by chasing these groups around the Middle East endlessly, and I would argue fruitlessly. The best way is to secure this country's borders. But clearly, we're not there yet. So there's got to be some transition period. But that goal of ultimately dealing with global terrorism by seeking a goal that 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 is actually feasible that is controlling our own borders versus seeking a goal that's not feasible that is stabilizing again what i would insist is this terminally dysfunctional region that's got to be at the forefront of us leaders minds right now and it's not right now ambassador ford um i i think a lot of people at least in this conversation recognize the desire to remove american troops from syria but the american public they saw what happened with the withdrawal from afghanistan which would be difficult to describe as having 
haven't gone well. They see what happened when American troops left Iraq and ISIS was able to really gain a foothold in in that country and become a big problem for the United States and others. And they might be a little gun shy about withdrawing troops from anywhere in the Middle East. What would you say to somebody uh, listening to this conversation right now that thinks it's probably better to err on the side of keeping them there than withdrawing them? They should definitely be withdrawn. Let's be clear. The numbers are low here, fewer than 1,000. You're not going to try and tell me that fewer than 1,000 U.S. troops are are going to make a huge difference to the security of an area the size of Texas. That's where they are in north uh, Syria. And they are... uh, uh, they're there helping an, an army of about 20,000 mainly Kurdish militia forces. All that would happen if the US, those several hundred U.S. forces were taken out of harm's way would be that the Kurds would come to an arrangement with Assad, and between them they would reestablish security in that forsaken God-forsaken part of Syria. Let's remember, this is Syria. (laughs) We're not talking about Kansas. This is another country. The U.S. has no right in international law to be there at all. They had an excuse when they were fighting ISIS, but that's long gone. The the Syrian government itself, uh, Assad, they are tougher on ISIS than we are. Believe me, you don't mess with, (laughs) with those guys. Uh, the best thing from our own point of view would be to let Assad deal with the tar baby of the remnants of, uh, of ISIS and take those troops out of harm's way. They're just protecting Biden's reputation. Well, that was my next question. Is that uh, the Islamic State or ISIS or ISIL, whatever their uh, their name these days uh, is, depending on who's calling it to them? Uh, they're certainly Assad's enemy as well, and we've seen the United States uh, partner when its circumstances were beneficial to the United States with all sorts of varieties of bad actors. Alan, is there any scenario in which the United States would actually consider partnering? with Assad to rid Syria of the remnants of the Islamic State? I think that some kind of an explicit partnership is unfortunately out of the question right now precisely because the U.S. foreign policy establishment, including President Biden, has spent so much time and so much energy vilifying Assad. Um, I can conceive of circumstances by which we we do take U.S. troops out and work with him in some clandestine way. But I would like to also make one point about U.S. domestic politics, and that is I don't see any evidence whatever that President Biden was really hurt at all in the long run by the Afghanistan withdrawal, however botched the execution was, because I look at the November 2022 off-year election results, and I and I see that Democrats did much better than folks expected, and that Afghanistan played almost no role in those results, whatever. And if the withdrawal from Syria 
is completed quickly, that is long before election 2024 rolls around, I don't expect President Biden will pay any significant political price either. Ambassador Ford, uh, the Islamic State, they're clearly, as you stated, they're Assad's enemy as well. Is there any scenario in which it would be wise for the United States military to actually partner with Assad, who's been called a war criminal, who's been called a butcher and the son of a butcher, and actually work together to rid the region of whatever's left of ISIS? There's just one way that uh, cooperation would work, and that is for the U.S. troops to be removed and to allow the Syrian uh, official army forces to go in there. The U.S. forces are preventing Assad from mopping up the remnants of ISIS. It's unbelievable. They are preventing the mopping up of ISIS. Just simply removing them would allow the Assad government, supported no doubt by Russia and the Iranians to clear out the remnants of of ISIS. Um, The previous speaker made an interesting point about uh, Afghanistan. Uh, Absolutely correct. I'm sure the the actual outcome from Afghanistan hasn't been bad at all. All those dire forecasts about how Afghanistan was, uh, we were leaving a vacuum. You always hear that argument, we're going to leave a vacuum and it's going to be terrible, and there's going to be terrorists. Well, it hasn't happened, as the real experts predicted. It hasn't happened, and it was a good move to get out of Afghanistan. But there's another geopolitical factor, and that is that leaving Syria would look like a win for Iran and Mm. Russia. Mm. Ah, Now, that is awkward, the way it, it could be presented by Biden's enemies. Joe, let me give you the last word since you've spent a lot of time in Afghanistan on the question of uh, of Syria and rooting out terrorists there. I mean, if there is a withdrawal of American troops, I think a lot of people are concerned that that is basically sentencing our Kurdish allies in Syria to uh, death at the hands of Assad. Uh, Any any reaction to what either Alan or Ambassador Ford said on the Afghanistan front and and two? Um, what would a post-U.S. occupied Syria look like? Uh, Well, I agree and disagree on a lot of their points. I agree more. I think that a vacuum is a real thing, right? And um, But when you look at it, Frank, in the early days of the war on terror, we did partner with Iran, actually, on the uh, Taliban. They had a lot of intel, and the president, uh, I can't think of his name, uh, who was there at the time, he shared a lot of that with us. We partnered with the Syrians uh, in the war war on terror. Was there a Shia Sunni re- reason behind that? Yes, right. Taliban, Al Qaeda, predominantly only a Sunni group. They're predominantly a Shia, you know, mm-hmm. in Iran. So we can do that. I agree with the a- a- ambassador. I think we can embed our special forces teams there to guide the Kurds and help the Kurds and actually help Assad out, right? We have a common en- enemy, and we should attack them. Do we need a presence there? And would it hurt Biden? I don't think think so, right? Because whoever's going to vote for him isn't going to care if we have troops there or not. Like when you look at his far left base – are they going to care that he's ending another war? Yeah, I mean, my view is right? that and, anybody that's voting for him is voting yeah. for him and because I think he's long not term, Donald Trump. The long term, like we did in Somalia with the pirates, which we could talk about at another time, 
Look, at, we when you go into these places and start wars, that becomes a breeding ground for the Islamists, mm. right, the radicals. So I think there's we have to uh, really look at a long-term stra- strategy to make these groups less appealing, less financially ben- beneficial for someone to become a j- j- jihadist, to make a situation on the ground better so they don't gravitate towards these groups. Um, I definitely think that we should continue our hunt for them. Do we need to have thousands of troops deployed there? No, I don't think we do. All right. Um, when we return, we're going to continue with Ambassador Peter Ford, Alan Tonelson of Reality Check, and uh, Marine veteran Joseph Ween. We're going to talk Iran. We're going to talk Russia. We're going to talk China. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, uh, joined for the hour by the former British ambassador to both Bahrain and Syria, Peter Ford, uh, by Alan Tonelson, uh, founder of Reality Check, a terrific blog uh, writing about a lot of the political and public policy issues that you talk about every day, and uh, Joseph Ween, a longtime public servant, Marine veteran, and a former civilian contractor in the Middle East. All right. Uh, a lot of people have been discussing Iran. We see this um, normalization, this new normalization of relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia. There's also a great deal of speculation that they're pursuing nuclear weapons. A lot of people are saying that Iran's truce with Saudi Arabia is healing a major rift in that country. But Iran's economy is still totally in the tank, which has Iran looking for a lot of answers as the population is not at all happy. Uh, let's talk about this Iran-Saudi Arabia alliance first. Ambassador Ford, uh, you are you have the most diplomatic experience, I'm assuming, among us. Has the U.S. role as a global peacemaker been usurped by China, given China's role in mediating this Iran-Saudi Arabia normalization? Well, what we've seen with the Ukraine conflict is how what they call called the Global South, that is most of the world except uh, Europe and America, the Global South has been driven together because they've all suffered from Western sanctions on Russia. They, they've caught more of the, the brunt uh, than, than the US uh, has. And so they're, they're coming together. They, they have a common interest in trying to make peace, not war, in Ukraine. 
Uh, Alan, uh, what do you think this uh, Iran Saudi situation? You know, if you look at the situation uh, objectively, as Joe alluded to, uh, there are some areas where the United States and Iran have uh, natural things in common. Both of us are sworn enemies of ISIS. Both of us have a vested interest in uh, keeping this government in Iraq, which is an ally of both Iran and the United States, afloat. What do you think about uh, where things are? headed when it comes to Iran? Well, first of all, my um, strong sense right now um, is that the U.S. has really very few genuinely, if any, genuinely vital interests left in the Middle East. Like I said before, if we're worried about ISIS or other jihadist groups, we should secure our own border. Um, We no longer have to worry nearly as much about access the Persian Gulf oil as we had because we we've discovered we have so much energy in this country itself. Um, I'm also pretty skeptical despite this this quite noteworthy uh, Saudi Iranian detente that we've seen in the last few weeks. I'm really kind of skeptical that that either it's going to last very long or even if it does last very long, it's going to amount to very much because those two are really natural rivals. And there is there remain deep theological disputes between them. And if we're worried that one or the other might become some kind of a regional hegemon, I think we can be pretty certain that the other one is not going to stand for that. Uh, Joe, uh, your thoughts on where things are headed when it comes to Iran? Yeah, I would uh, agree with uh, both both of the comments that were just made. I think the significant thing there is China did make the deal uh, where in you look at Trump, he was making deals between the Israelis and Arab states. Now China comes in as the ref- referee significant and, you know, we underestimate Iran. They're very smart. They're an ancient society. You know, I have firsthand accounts mm-hmm. of folks that live there and high-ranking members of their government. I think this could be a ploy by Iran, right? Saudi Arabia is their biggest threat in the region. So why not make peace with them for now and focus on the threat uh, and get into a proxy war with the United States? For some reason, I don't understand the policy with Iran. Right. Everyone seems to push them off. They're not important. They're not strong. Look at their Quds Force guys are very strong. Their military is very strong. Their economy is bad. So it's significant. It's significant that arch enemies divided on religion are coming together and making and on a lot of and on a lot of political things Uh, are are coming together as not necessarily an ally, but having detente, which allows Iran to focus on other things. It, you know, the a lot of people are concerned that Iran is seeking nuclear weapons. They've always maintained that they're not seeking nuclear weapons. And I, I guess the question that I would have is why do they need – they maintain their nuclear energy program is peaceful – and my question, I guess, would be why do they need nuclear power when they're such an oil-rich country? I, I think uh, that's a little uh, – it's a little uh, – it, it defies any sort of logic. You believe Iran is seeking uh, n- nuclear weapons? Yes, absolutely, 100 percent, Frank. You talk to anybody in the intelligence co- community, anybody has any idea about this, I'll tell you what. They would agree with us. And they're bringing – let's say they're they're doing it 
saying we want a program to provide power, cheap power throughout the United States, clean uh, throughout the United States, you know, in Iran, for them to make the jump to 90 percent to uh, create a weapon is snap. Uh, uh, Alan, what's your take on Iran, nuclear power, nuclear weapons? How big of a concern is this for the United States and the world? Well, I certainly agree that they are seeking nuclear weapons. And if they weren't motivated enough by what happened to former Libyan dictator Gaddafi, um, who, of course, didn't have them and and got himself overthrown by a U.S.-backed military coalition, he um, the Iranian leaders would certainly be looking at Ukraine over the last year, which gave up its own nuclear weapons in the early 1990s. Um, so there's no question that the Iranian leadership sees acquiring nuclear weapons as its ultimate security guarantee against any move that the United States or U.S. allies in the Middle East might take uh, to overthrow it. Um, but again, I... I can't get myself to be overly concerned nowadays with the Iranian acquisition of such weapons. When we needed the oil, that that would be a genuinely deep concern. We no longer need it. I, I certainly am concerned about the security implications for Israel, but I think the Israelis can take care of themselves with enough U.S. military aid, which shows no signs of stopping, precisely because Israel's got its own nuclear force, which is which will be more than enough to deter whatever Iran develops. Uh, Ambassador, your take on everything that we just said regarding Iran, nuclear energy, etc. Uh, I agree absolutely with the last uh, speaker. Um, the Iranians are, will also be looking at North Korea. Look what happened there. A few years ago, we were all dreadfully worried about North Korea. All they were developing nuclear. Uh, The Donald had the right idea to more or less acquiesce. He didn't have much choice anyway, but he acquiesced with grace. Uh, And North Korea has gone virtually quiet. We've more or less stopped worrying about North Korea. So in the same way, we should stop worrying so much about Iran going nuclear. Israel has a balancing nuclear deterrent for sure. Uh, The Iranians uh, are not suicidal, but we should just stop worrying about it. All right. Um, In terms of uh, Russia, well, actually, before we leave the Middle East, uh, this month marks the uh, 20th anniversary of the Iraq War. And uh, I think the conventional wisdom in many corners of the world was that uh, this was a mistake through the prism of hindsight. Obviously, we don't get to make decisions about war through the prism of of hindsight. Ambassador, I'll begin with you. Knowing what we know now, was it a mistake to invade Iraq when the United States did 20 years ago? Uh, Totally. And some of us foresaw it at at the time. They can't say it wasn't foreseen. It it was. it's been a total disaster. It's opened the door to Iran in uh, Iraq. Previously, Saddam was, was keeping uh, the Iranians at, at bay. Um, it opened the door to uh, the, the, the emergence of uh, ISIS. That, that, that was the worst but foreseeable outcome when you create a, 
uh, anarchy in a, in a heavily armed country. Uh, and it's been a disaster, let's not forget, for the people of Iraq, hundreds of thousands of whom were killed. And all those thousands of US forces who became casualties, it was a total disaster from beginning to end. And they haven't learned the, the right lessons. This is the thing, they're not learning the lessons that you don't wade into a country and wage war and create mayhem and chaos. You do it at your own peril. But this is what they're, they're doing in, in Syria and by proxy in Iraq. All they learned was A, to, do, to use more proxies, yeah? Uh, don't put so many boots on the ground. And B, to do a better job of hoodwink, hoodwinking the public. More information warfare directed against our own people. Uh, Joe, your your take on the biggest lesson learned 20 years later over the American experience in Iraq. What do you think? Yeah, Frank, I uh, haven't spent just about three years, three and a half years on the ground in Iraq. Uh, before the war, we all – anybody that knew anything about the region knew the issues that were going to come, 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 come up. Iraq, I believe, is more tribal and segmented than Afghanistan in many ways. So, yeah, it was a mistake. Um, don't go into wars that you don't need to be, be in. If you read Sun Tzu, The Art of War, he very clearly states this, and that book is thousands upon thousands of years old. Um, definitely do not go in if it's not of a vital strategic importance. Uh, taking out Saddam, listen, maniac, genocidal, mur- mur- murderer, without a doubt. But did we need to go in and upset the balance of power and the ambassador hit it right? Even then, Iran was still the um, state sponsor mm-hmm. of terrorism, was the geopolitical force that we were really against there. Uh, big mistake. Alan, 20 years after Iraq, um, the very same pundits that advocated for escalation in Iraq are now on TV pontificating. A lot of the same policymakers that were so enthusiastic about the war in, in Iraq are uh, very enthusiastic about uh, involving America in other global conflicts these days. I mean, should the folks that led us to war 20 years ago have any sort of credibility these days? Frank, at the same time, even though I remain broadly non-interventionist when it comes to most foreign policy questions, I'm, I'm, frank, I'm still wrestling with this. And the reason is that back in the early 2000s, I do believe that securing access to Persian Gulf oil was a vital U.S. interest. And unfortunately, I think that this country found itself in a position where it had few good choices. We do have to keep in mind that Saddam Hussein had used weapons of mass destruction, principally chemical weapons, twice during the uh, – well, at, 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 at least in two conflicts during the 1980s against the Iraqi Kurds and also against Iran. We have to recognize that he'd been seeking nuclear weapons for decades and that only the Israeli-led strike on that Osirak nuclear reactor slowed him down. And I, I really do think that the acquisition of that regime 
of nuclear weapons at a time when this country really did need that Persian gold foil would have been a completely unacceptable uh, um, I, um, outcome. And unfortunately, we didn't plan well for the aftermath because there was really no time. And that's why I say we had few good choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, let me, speaking of nuclear weapons, the news came out yesterday that Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, announced that he's moving uh, some of his nuclear arsenal to uh, Belarus. It's uh, very clear that this uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict shows no sign of abating. So far, the United States has uh, appropriated in the order of about a hundred billion dollars to the Ukrainians so far, either in terms of direct aid or in terms of uh, weapons aid. And uh, it seems like the United States role in this conflict on the Ukrainian end of things appears to be uh, escalating. Ambassador Ford, how do you see the situation in Ukraine right now? Where do you see it going? Uh, What's the best case scenario, the worst case scenario from where you're standing? Um, Well, it looks like uh, the U.S. is ready to fight to the last Ukrainian. That's how it looks like from from Europe. Uh, The the U.S. appears to be opposed to anybody who tries to mediate, like the Chinese very recently, um, determined to keep stoking the fires of war by sending ever more advanced uh, weapons. Um, and uh, conducting essentially a proxy war aimed at weakening Russia, all this at the expense of of Ukraine and the the wider Europe. Um, Frankly, the best thing from everybody's point of view, including the US, would be to uh, cut our losses, uh, encourage the Ukrainians to make peace on the best possible uh, terms, so have to compromise. But uh, in the end, in the end, they're going to have to compromise. They, they, they could have had a good deal a year ago. Now that deal has gone away. Uh, if they fight on, it will just extend into a World War One like stalemate. And in the end, they'll end up, everybody ends up losers. Alan, uh, we heard from the former prime minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett, that he was in touch with both Zelensky and Putin, and he was of the opinion that both sides were open to a peaceful negotiated settlement uh, to end the conflict. But uh, according to Bennett, the United States helped torpedo those uh, attempted negotiations. Do you see any scenario uh, for a a peaceful end to this anytime soon? And if not, what's the alternative? Where are we going? Well, I don't see any scenario to a peaceful end anytime soon, precisely because President Biden is so committed to this utterly reckless course of, as Ambassador uh, Ford, very astutely put it, fighting to the last Ukrainian. And in my view, there is no question that This country's Ukraine policy is the height of foreign policy recklessness. We are courting the risk of nuclear war. We are exposing the U.S. homeland to nuclear attack by Russia on behalf of a country 
that we have never viewed as a vital U.S. national security interest and that we still don't view as a vital U.S. national security interest, as evidenced by the fact that we still refuse to admit Ukraine into NATO. If we viewed Ukraine as vital, we would have let it into NATO by now. We haven't. And to my mind, you never court any nuclear risk on behalf of an objective that's not vital, because courting nuclear risk means, again, exposing your country to nuclear attack, which, by the way, would be a thousand times worse, a gazillion times worse than was 9-11. Uh, Joe, the Russia-Ukraine situation, how do you see it? Yeah, I uh, I agree, Frank. Look, I think that there's two reasons why it benefits the Biden administration in a way to keep it going, which I do not agree with the way it went. Um, but one, if you keep the war on, it, Russia cannot rebuild. Russia cannot get strong. Russia cannot divert source, a lot of resources to Iran and Syria. So the longer we keep the war going on, proxy or otherwise, it weakens the Russians. They can't rebuild. So now with Russia pretty much out as a power, a military power, we only have to contend with China. China is going to be the military threat of of the future. So I think it benefits us in that way. When I say benefits us, I don't really mean benefits us. That's their plan. And number two is abstractly. If we were not spending all this cash on bullets, bombs, and beans – sending to the Ukraine. There's no doubt in my mind, because you look at the stock of the companies prior to the war that supply a lot of these things, and now during the war, I think that is what really stopped us from going into a recession. Uh, All right, we're going to talk about China with uh, Alan and Joe in a moment. Uh, I think the ambassador has to uh, uh, jump off. Ambassador, thanks for the time this hour. We'll talk again soon. Actually, actually, Frank, I I can stay. Okay, great. Good. We'll uh, we'll, we'll keep you if you're willing. All right, we'll talk China with Ambassador Peter Ford, Joseph Wien, and Alan Tonelson straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined for the hour by Ambassador Peter Ford, Joseph Ween, and and Alan Tonelson. The problem when discussing China is that there's so many different aspects of it to discuss. You have uh, China spending $240 billion bailing out Belt and Road countries. You have uh, fears over Taiwan and what America should do in the event of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. You still have a lot of lingering hard feelings, to put it mildly, over the COVID situation. There's economic concerns. There's geopolitical concerns. And in the halls of Congress right now, there's a strong debate about whether to ban one of the most popular social media apps in the country, TikTok. And by the way, it turns out that three of the 10 most popular apps that people are downloading in this country in the United States are Chinese. It's not just TikTok. There's two others that are right up there. Uh, Joe, let me begin with the TikTok situation. There's uh, some people that say that uh, this is just uh, Chinophobia banning uh, banning TikTok. Where do you come down on the nature uh, on a TikTok ban specifically, and on U.S.-China relations more broadly? Well, yeah. 
Yeah, Frank, it's a, a complicated thing. Like I said, China is the biggest threat to the United States right now. Once again, a Chinese person, Sun Tzu, the art of war, the greatest general, wins the battle without firing a shot. Modern warfare, warfare is always going to change. And I'm going to quote somebody, you know, World War II didn't look like World War One. Korea didn't look like Vietnam. Persian right, you're always so the last four. So – the Chinese are very smart, and we're in an asymmetrical war, a propaganda war with them, and they've infiltrated the United States through that. If you ever read deep into the terms of use, when you log on to TikTok, which nobody reads, but South Park made a parody right, on right. about uh, you know the iPhones, it is absolutely a spying tool. It is absolutely a psychological warfare tool. They get to look in everything, download things onto your phone. If you send me a TikTok, they could look at my phone, grab my data, all of that. If you look at TikTok, now they control the algorithm. In the United States, what do you have? Tide Pod Challenge, mm. Cinnamon Challenge. Um, I don't want to use a term for certain girls or guys, an Insta fame model, whatever mm. terms they use for that. People acting promiscuous and drunk and doing stupid things and kids being dumb. That's what you see a lot in the UK and you see in the United States. Just people making fools of themselves or maybe a good video here or there. Look at the TikTok in China. It's Chinese kids excelling in math, playing chess, engineering feats, Chinese society being successful and educated, right? So what are they doing? Hey, eat Tide Pods here. I mean, we have kids eating soap as a ch- ch- challenge, but you look at the kids in China, it's showing them excelling right, at educational, math. educational uh, yes. material. Alan Donaldson, uh, whether it's uh, TikTok, Taiwan, Tiananmen, uh, how, what's your take on all the teas in China? Well, regarding TikTok, China is a hostile dictatorship that's been challenging truly vital national security interests, and that is the U.S.'s access to Taiwan's world-leading semiconductor manufacturing technology. And like every entity that is based in China, TikTok is an arm in actuality or potentially of the Chinese government, as Joseph just pointed out, it's clearly spreading Chinese propaganda. And those facts totally override whatever First Amendment concerns folks have expressed in opposition to banning TikTok. It should be kicked out of this country immediately. Ambassador Ford, a lot of Americans are fearful that China could take advantage of what's happening with Ukraine and Russia now and use this as an opportunity to move forward with a Taiwanese invasion. Is that a legitimate concern? And what should the United States reaction be if that were to come to pass? Uh, I think uh, there's a lot of hysteria about over China. It's pure hysteria to be worrying about a um, stupid thing like, if you want to be worried, worry about Chinese uh, monopoly, uh, near monopoly uh, over vital uh, lithium for lithium batteries. We're all supposed to go electric with our cars by t- when at 2030, whenever. Uh, that, that's something that you, you, the, the strategy hawks should be worrying about, but aren't. And they always forget that China's number one preoccupation is prosperity not war. Uh, they spend about one-sixth, one-sixth of what the U.S. spends on, on defense. Their, their posture is defensive. 
especially after U Ukraine, they're not going to wade into Taiwan. And even if they did, we ourselves, we ourselves admit that Taiwan is part of China. Uh, we should, but bottom line, China wants trade. So just as we should never have worried about access to the Middle East, what, what were the Middle Easters going to do? Drink it? No, they had to sell it. Uh, this is the bottom line, and it's the same with all strategic commodities. Uh, Joe, uh, China, Taiwan, uh, is this a legitimate concern, and what should the United States' reaction be if there's an invasion? Well, dude, you know, I, I agree, i got to say, partially with the ambassador, but I also dis disagree with part of what he said, with all due respect. Because, you know, when you look at warfare, dude, it's just not one the dimension anymore. It's multidimensional. Yes, the lithium all being processed there and the batteries and all that stuff. Yes, he's 100% right, and we missed the boat on that. But part of warfare is propaganda. And if you can control your enemy and the youth, that's a big, big thing. And as China, we see, like I said, very smart. They're not looking at the next five years. They're looking at the next 250 years. How are we going to control the United States? Take out the youth. But with that being said, uh, you know, will they go into Thai, Taiwan? You don't know. Dude. Biden is weak. Uh, we're preoccupied. Our economy shaky. We're uh, sending all these things to Ukraine. We might have a proxy war with Iran soon. Will they test us out? If they do, there is no doubt in my mind. I don't think we've identified Taiwan as part of mainland China since the revolution. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, depending uh, on what answer uh, President Biden yeah, gives at the time. I don't know. Uh, this hour has flown by. Ambassador Peter Ford, Alan Tonelson, check Alan out at Reality Check Blog, uh, Joseph Ween. I hope you'll all come back soon. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Frank. Until, you. until If you want to comment on anything we've discussed, you can, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Until next time, your influence counts. Be sure to use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight, America's most, hopefully, entertaining radio talk show. Certainly, I would venture to say the most thought-provoking. Uh, yours truly, Frank Moreno, here for one more hour. I've asked my friend uh, Joseph Ween to stick around for the hour as well because he's an expert on uh, on and just about everything. Just ask him. He'll tell you, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, well, here's an interesting question that I want to pose to you. And this was in the Sunday New York Post. And initially, I thought this has got to be one of those stories where there's got to be more to it. And it turns out there's not. Uh, I want to ask you a very important question. Should you, and I'll give you the details of what's behind this question in a moment, but I want you to just think about this question. 
If you're employed somewhere, whether it's in a private sector business, whether it's for a government agency, whether it's uh, in a small business, a hardware store somewhere, whatever the case may be, should you have the right to lie about job offers from other potential employers? Should you be able to say, let's say you're working for Acme Plumbing, I got to tell you, Mr. Acme, XYZ Plumbing, he's been knocking on my door, offered me a pretty generous raise. Now, meanwhile, there was no offer, certainly no offer with a raise. I'd like to stay here, but can't do it. I can't do it for this money. Should that be permitted? 800-848-9222. Let me tell you a story about Daniel Miller. He's a, a bureaucrat. But like most bureaucrats, he's making a lot more money than I am. Uh, the uh, Daniel Miller was a bureaucrat in the New York City uh, pension uh, fund, basically. He's a pension executive for working for the city of New York. He lied about a job offer to get a huge raise. He is the deputy executive director of the Board of Education Retirement System. And he was earning $200,000. Well, they found out that he was, you know, that he got a job offer, or so he claimed, for a uh, significant pay hike. And they said it was from an Ohio pension system a couple of years ago. And turns out it was made up. It uh, was totally fallacious. And so now, once they found out about this, his salary has been slashed from what he was earning after lying about this other job offer. He was earning $262,650. That salary has been slashed to $200,000. And it was the executive director, Sanford Rich, of the uh, Board of Education Retirement System that made this decision to cut his salary. And it was Rich who gave him the pay hike to begin with, the $28,549 pay hike to to $255,000 in 2018 after the deputy falsely claimed an Ohio pension system had offered him a job at that level. And then managerial issues hiked Miller's paycheck further. So he was earning... Very good salary, even in New York, $262,650. And that salary has been cut to now $250,000, basically as a little bit of a, a brushback pitch, a little bit of a slap on the wrist, a little bit of a smack of reality because he lied about a job offer that never came. He's going to keep the same title. And um, this comes as the New York City controller Brad Lander, called on the state to investigate this particular pension fund for mismanagement, excessive spending, and because they had failed to discipline Mr. Miller, Daniel Miller, when they found out about this. So Lander sits on the city's pension board. This is one of the things that it's the job of the controller to do. He said he was not informed about the changes until um, they, BRRS, that's what they call the Board of Education Retirement System, they answered a question from the New York Post. And um, this is what the controller said to the Post. While we're glad to see any consequences for malfeasance, 
why was the board not informed of these actions until the New York Post reached out to the trustees? We continue to be concerned that the board does not have sufficient governance and oversight controls in place to protect Burr's pension beneficiaries. Now, a couple of things. One, I realize we shouldn't be throwing around public money, and this is all public money we're dealing with, willy-nilly. And uh, nobody is more an advocate of fiscal responsibility than I am. I think there's a lot of people throughout uh, state, city, federal government, and probably that's true in all 50 states and the District of Columbia, that are earning questionable salaries for doing questionable work. Okay. Secondly, though, I don't think this guy should have gotten a pay high, a pay um, cut once they found out about his fake job offer. My view is if someone tells you they have a job offer with more money and you don't want to give them more money, tell them no. Agreed. Tell them tell them you don't want the, to you can't afford, you're not budgeted to pay more money. And if it's not, we'd love to keep you here, but we can only keep you here at the money that we're paying you. If you can't make that work here, then good luck to you. We want the best for you. Good luck in Ohio. We hear it's a great place to 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 retire. They have the James Garfield Museum there. They have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum there. God bless you. Now, uh, if your employer, whether it's the public sector or the private sector, is actually going to give you a pay raise because they think you have this fictitious job offer and you as the as the manager are not going to do a little homework and actually find out if this job offer is real, that's on you 100%. I think this guy should not have had to be disciplined and lose his raise. What do you think? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Uh, 800-848-9222. Joe, let me begin with you because I identified you as a longtime public servant, but you've worked in the uh, private sector as well. You've done private sector security. You've uh, worked in construction. You've done a lot of different things, including a lot of very competitive fields. Where do you come down on this situation? On the one hand, uh, people are saying you're rewarding dishonesty if he gets to keep the raise. On the other hand, you have basically what I said is, you know, if he's not entitled to the raise, you shouldn't give it to him. Yeah, I agree with you, Frank. Look, in the end, and coming from my uh, the background that I have, I always say this, and this is my famous saying today, don't believe anything you hear and question everything you see. With technology, especially today, what I would do is I would turn around and uh, uh, to somebody and say, hey, let me see the, the offer. I would go on the website and see if they're actually offering that job, then let me see if his awful ladder jives with what he's saying. Just don't turn around and say, hey, by the way, Frank, you right, know. Here's another $30,000. Here's another. By the way, Frank, I'm going to uh, go on a radio show, so you better hire me as your assistant or else I'm going to. Oh, all right, Joe, you're hired. No, your due diligence in everything is super important. Do the research. It's easier today than ever before. Uh, so do I blame this guy for trying to throw a bluff, a fake play, uh, you know, hand trick? No. He shouldn't have lied. Absolutely. Public. It's bad. It's public money. But 
the fault also lies with the person who should have investigated this. Yeah, no doubt. Or if he shouldn't have gotten the raise, don't give him don't one. Don't give him you, one. You're it's under no simple. obligation to give somebody a raise just because they say they have another uh, job offer. 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze, where do you come down? Because this goes on in the radio business, too. People lie all the time about job offers from other radio stations and things like that. Yeah, if you want to lie, lie, but you're going to get caught, especially in a business like radio, because everybody knows each other. Right, well, that's so, true. So it's better, very easy to call over to so-and-so that works for this other company and go, hey, is this is this going on? Is there a uh, job offer for this it's opening, and do you know anything about it? Uh, so, yeah, you can lie, but don't be surprised if you get caught. And, no, I don't think they, they sh- he should have got a pay cut. Yeah, I, think- I, I, I really don't. I'd love to hear from some people that feel differently. The guy lied. Shame on him. He's a liar. He's dishonest. A lot better ways to ask for a raise that you believe that you're entitled to. But, uh, I, I mean, I think the, to slash his salary by $60,000 for this, I think, is a dramatic overreaction. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, I have a couple of points on this, Frank. But first, if if you're the person that made the alleged offer and then someone comes out of the blue and says that you offer someone that, you would say, I don't know you. What's behind this? This may be like some sort of uh, spying on me. So I would say uh, I would probably not give the information if uh, on on the person. I wouldn't I wouldn't say anything. I wouldn't trust the people inquiring as to what their motives are. The second thing is you could also possibly intuit whether the person, whether it's true or not, would get an offer like that. You know, you could take a guess. Now, for example, if if a girl says, I got other guys interested in me, uh, and she's attractive, the type that would sit on a beach and have people walk up to her, that type of thing, you could kind of believe her even if it's not true so she can she can use that that you know halo effect as a lie but it is a clever ploy to do that it's it's actually a good idea if if you're into lying yeah well so uh joe as it stands now do you think he should get this this significant pay cut sixty thousand dollars i mean that's real no, it no because it's like if you want to keep the guy, then uh, you you know that's also uh, it's not a proper response. Yeah, thank you, Joe. And look, it looks like the uh, the BERS, the Board of Education Retirement System, might have been up to other shenanigans that they were trying to uh, not less necessarily let Brad Lander make a pre- press conference out of or make a make a report out of. And maybe they were trying to, um, I don't know, uh, maybe they were trying to say, look what we're doing here so that you don't look behind door number two. But I, I think this guy is being made a scapegoat because because he works for Burrs and Burrs, according to Lander, is up to sh- some shenanigans. Joe is in Manhattan. Hello, Joe. George, hi. Listen, Frank. If this was in a third world country and I was a boss, I'd kick him in the butt, you know, immediately, because I would never trust somebody like that, even if he were, even if it was a fact. And he wanted to leave. Now, here in the United States, because of the laws, etc., I'd be diplomatic. I'd say congratulations to him. And when are you leaving, by the way? Uh, you know, I'd <laughs> ask him. 
etc. Because I would never ever trust somebody like that anymore, and I would diplomatically uh, try to get rid of him for good from the company. Well, uh, whether uh, he was telling me the truth or not, because of of disloyalty. Uh, that's number one. But even if he were telling me the truth, you know that he was that was like some type of blackmail. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I, look, I, I got I, an I, offer. I don't. I don't agree with that, uh, Joe slash George. Thank you. Well, did I, he violate the public trust, Frank? Well, I, I, I get. I don't know. I mean, I don't yes, know. Yeah, I guess he did. But I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think the guy did anything seriously professionally wrong is it ethically yeah. wrong yeah. maybe it's right in yeah. that gray area but i don't agree with george um in terms of that even if it was true i would have thrown the guy out i think there's nothing wrong uh, with uh, having a situation where you get an offer and you go to your existing employer and say look this is the offer that i've gotten can you match this right and, and sometimes i've left jobs a couple of times and the employer that I was leaving complained that I never gave them an opportunity to match. So at least this employer, even though it's directly or indirectly the city of New York, this employer wouldn't have been able to say that same thing. What say you? 800-848-9222. Marianne is in Queens. Hello, Marianne. Good morning, Frank. I agree 100% with you. Uh, I believe that we are behaving like, you know, third world country communists. We, could, we keep criticizing them, but we are doing worse. Why didn't they find out or at least look when he uh, first told them that he was having a proposal from other company? I believe that this is outrageous. And let me tell you, Frank, if they're going to do that to people that lie, they might then have to get rid of half of the country <laughs> because the way that we're seeing things is everybody's a liar. So if we are going to penalize someone because he's not telling the truth, forget it, then we are lost more than we are now. Forget it. I don't agree with it. Uh, thank you, Marianne. Appreciate that. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Russ is in White Plains. Hello, Russ. Hey, Frank. So it's a form of unjust enrichment that this guy got a higher salary. Is that the idea? I, I, I guess so. Yeah. So, uh, But you're suggesting they discipline the manager, right? Because they're really covering their ass at this uh, pension place. They're just pointing a finger at this guy and not disciplining the manager who should have checked it out closely. Right. right. I mean, I think if you're going to discipline someone, that's where the discipline should be pointed, yes. Right. It's, a, it's like the George Santos effect. I mean, self-righteous people like Richie Torres, instead of blaming the Republican Party that let George Santos slip through and the voters who don't pay enough attention to the news articles that are written, it's easier to just blame George Santos, who I think was right when he said, put the AK-47 on the American flag. We've got another case of that. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. We're getting pretty far afield here. Folks. I know, Frank, but you leave me on for two hours. Can I just say a couple of quick things? Go ahead, go ahead. All right, listen, uh, you know, when you said... At uh, Murano Vision, you're able to search that even if you don't have Instagram. And I saw Carmine. He's one of the cutest babies I've ever seen. He looks really happy. And it, what is the idea? You think he's going to be a helicopter pilot with the fans? Is that what you're saying? I have no idea. It's a good question. I, you got me. You got me. Uh, Apparently, it's pretty common with children. Though. Real, real quick. I think it's a generational thing with the end where younger people say it's just just means stupid. N-word industrial complex with son 
Sun Tzu. And I think Donald Trump means when death and destruction comes, it's because Biden's going to get us in a war and say we can't change horses in midstream. All he needs 2% of the public to go along with it. Thanks a lot, Frank. Well, thank, thank, thank you, Russ. Uh, by the way, uh, one, I don't think tar baby is necessarily a racist term. I think it was, I, I don't remember who it was. It might have been Sarah Palin or some conservative. They tried to say that he or she was being racist when they use that term uh, tar baby. Tar baby is a story published in 1881 about a doll made of tar and turpentine used by the villainous Br'er Fox to entrap Br'er Rabbit. The more that Br'er Rabbit fights the tar baby, the more entangled he becomes. I thought it was actually a perfect metaphor for what uh, Peter Ford was trying to say, in modern usage, a tar baby refers to a problematic situation that's only aggravated by additional involvement with it. I, I mean, that's I, I didn't think I, just because the word tar is there, I, it doesn't make it racist. You know, it's funny. I was at a wedding one time and it was an interracial wedding and um the the groom was white, the bride was black, and obviously the family was black. And one of the groom's brothers used the term to another one of the groomsmen um, having nothing to do with race, having nothing to do with anybody at the party, nothing. I think they were talking about sports or something. And they, they used the term, call uh, you know, just call a spade a spade, right? And the other fella says to the groom's brother, oh, you can't say that here. You can't say that in this room. I said, what planet are we on where you can't even use common usage of terms because everybody's afraid they might accidentally become racist? People need to chill out. Well, that's what happens today, Frank, right? Yeah. So it, it, it's kind of like a, uh, a funny – we're in a very dynamic time in the United States, and I think things are evolving so fast – it's very hard to keep up with what's right and what's oh. wrong because it literally changes from day to day. Now, I don't think there are words that you should use, right? And I don't care, you know, oh, we reclaim this word. It's a bad word. But also, you shouldn't be told uh, what words you have to say. Right. But like I said, things evolve so fast now that by the time we get off this show, something we said here is going to be illegal. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't I don't doubt that, especially when we get uh, calls from uh, people like Russell. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Amadeo is in New Jersey. Hello, Amadeo. Good morning, Frank. How are you? Good. So first and foremost, uh, I should um, uh, show my hand that I am a business owner. But regarding this uh, guy that asked for more money. So in business, in my opinion, trust is the the most important thing to me. So I don't blame the guy for asking and pulling something to get more money. But once it's found out, the trust is gone, he's gone. But that does not end the problem. The problem is that the person that he asked a raise from made a horrible, horrible, stupid decision. He's the guy that's got to go next mm-hmm. in line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, because, I, because if I have people under me that can make that stupid of a decision approving this extra money without doing any research, how many other stupid things is he doing that I haven't caught yet? 
Yeah, I, I I can't argue with that, Amadeo. Uh, well well done, thank you. John's in Freehold. John, what do you think? Hey Frank, I, I think uh, everyone's going a little overboard with this. I mean, at any job, uh, you know, if if your value, you know, once you tell uh, you you can slip in like, oh, you know, I'm shopping around for new jobs or for other job offers. There's nothing wrong with that, you know. If they think you're worth it, they're going to pay you. Well, uh, well, no, no, but, but, but it is different. Uh, shopping around for other job offers is a little different than saying you have another job offer and that it's for substantially more money when you don't have another job offer. Yeah, but it's it's not on it. I, I I don't think it's on him at all. You know, that, that's on the guy, the people who gave it to him. All right. Well, hey, I, stay on the line, John. Stay on the line. I want you to address a concern from Robert in Suffolk. Robert, give me your take on this. This man stole from the pension fund lying about the offer. This is a crime in almost every state, if not all of them. It's public money. You're yeah. not allowed to do this. Hey, John, what about that? What about what Robert is saying? Uh, they're, they're getting paid ridiculous amounts of money anyway. Again, it's not him who did it. He's not the one who approved it. No. This guy who got the raise is lucky he's still employed and hasn't been fired and also arrested and charged with the crime. But it's, John, you're not arresting him if you're the prosecutor, needless to say. No. No, you know, again, it's on the superior, his uh, superior who approved it. All right. Thank- and I think it's also, you know, it's a little bit ridiculous that, uh, it, you know, once they gave him the raise, like, that's it. You don't just take it away. He's still making $250,000 a year. Yeah, he's doing just fine. Well, although, I'll be honest. And thank you, Robert. Thank you, uh, John. You know, you're not living like a king in New York City. Uh, with $200,000. I mean, not by a, a long stretch. I don't know if the guy has kids or whatever the case may be, but uh, $200,000 may be a lot in Mississippi. And look, uh, it's it's not insignificant anywhere, but you're not exactly lighting your cigars with $100 bills if you're paying rent or uh, paying for a house in somewhere like New York. 800-848-9222. Rich is in the Bronx. Hello. Hi, Frank. Consider, um, if you consider private industry, and you are telling an employee you have a, an offer, you're risking the chance that if he doesn't go along with you, he might let you go a couple months, refuse you and let you go a couple months later. But this gentleman worked for the government. Now, that's a secure job. He lied about it. Now, this is taxpayer money. So he had no jeopardy at all. So he should lose that risk. If it was private industry, it would be another story. I see. So there's a different set of circumstances when it comes to public money. Yes. All right. Absolutely. Okay, well, that's reasonable. What, what do you say to that, Joe, as somebody that's worked in the public sector and the uh, and the private sector? Yeah, I, I always say that, Frank, right? Uh, you know, when you're in the public sector, you're a public ser- servant, and there's a degree of trust that goes around that. We're given the public trust, and I think that escapes a lot of folks that serve today. And, uh, you know, in various levels of government, right, you are there for the public to serve us. And in return, through our tax dollars and other fees, 
we're paying you. So once that trust is violated, should you keep your public sector job? In the private sector, hey, look at what I want to pay you and what I want to do is up to me because I fund the I fund the institution myself. Yeah, so I, I think there is a different standard. Right. Well, maybe you're right. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Vinny in Massapequa. What do you say, Vinny? Vinny. All right, Vinny has been otherwise engaged. Larry in Brooklyn. Hello. Yeah, good, good morning, Frank. Uh, you were talking about words that you can't say today. Did you discuss the Julie Bassett case by any chance? Uh, is, is that the Barbie Bassett case? Uh, uh, I meant Barbie Bassett, yes. Did you yeah, discuss that? Yes, for a substantial amount of time, Larry. Yeah, oh, okay. Because I, I just wanted to say that I, I just learned about that yesterday, and that is the most ridiculous thing. She has to uh, be brought into the public uh, foreground and given a, come up to New York and be given a job, major job in New York as a reward. This woman needs to be compensated, overcompensated. What happened to her, they're destroying the country by doing things like that. All right, thank you, Larry. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, e. Frank is in Astoria. Hello, E. Frank. Yes, uh, good morning, Frank. Uh, it, you know, I'm quite surprised that this problem that you, this case that, about this uh, public sector, uh, this pension fund guy doing this, I'm not surprised, you know. Uh, uh, that happens in many jobs, in many spheres in, uh, in society. You know, I personally would have another approach with someone like this. I would put them under a form of surveillance. You might say I'm a crude, I'm ignorant. Uh, you, well, you like I mean, think- you, you can't put them under a form of surveillance. I mean, you, your employer can't legally surveil you. What What would he surveil him for yeah, that's, at I, this point? Frank, thank you, E. Frank. Yeah. I, you know, all right. Um, eight hundred eight. Uh, by the way, I just uh, looked it up. The, the person I was trying to remember. I think was Haley Barber who used that term um, tar baby when talking about Barack Obama. And uh, apparently I think he did apologize this is about 10 years ago, but it was Obama. It was uh, Haley Barber who I was thinking of, not, uh, not Sarah Palin. Uh, all right, Joe in Orange County, we'll give you the last word on this. Hello, Joe. Hey, how you doing? Uh, I, th- I think uh, he shouldn't get the pay cut because Sometimes bosses say, hey, we got several people waiting for that job and try to get you to bid down. So it works the other way. Also. You know, that is a great point. That is a great point. I- I've taken jobs where they say, you know, I know you probably I know you want to make uh, one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year. But quite frankly, you know, I don't have it. So what we have is 90. And who knows if that's true or not? You have no idea. That's that is a very good point, Joe. Thank you. Um, all right. What we're going to do is give the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222, an opportunity to play the $1,000 Minute. That means if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, you will be $1,000 richer. So be the seventh caller right now, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Frank Morano here, joined in studio for uh, this hour as well by the inimitable Joseph Ween. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
This is the other side of midnight. Time to see if we can't give away a little bit of money as part of... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Doc is in Milford, New Jersey. What's up, Doc? Hey, good morning, Frank. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. Have you heard this segment before, Doc? Uh, unfortunately, I'm never up at this hour. So okay, no, all right. I have we not. have no problem explaining the rules to you. So why are you awake now? Uh, I'm picking up my son at the airport. Oh, nice. Where's he coming in from? He's coming in from Seattle. Which airport? Uh, he's coming into Newark. Oh, okay. Well, that's not a bad pickup experience. I mean, no, not uh, too bad. That's not bad at all. If you ever have somebody to, uh, if you have to have to pick up someone at JFK, the smartest thing that you can do is instead drive to wherever they are, pick them up wherever they are, and drive back. It's a disaster picking anybody up from JFK Airport oh, no. under there's, any there's circumstances. There's no way. Yeah, there's yeah. no way. I said, you got to fly into Newark, but you're on there your There you own. go. Good for you. Laying down the law. All right. It's very simple. So uh, we have 10 trivia questions here. Most of them are uh, pretty simple. One or two, one you have to kind of know or you don't know. The other one, it might be a little a little tricky. The rest of them, eight of these are very easy questions. So you don't want to get flustered, and don't think a question is too easy. If uh, I ask you if what's two plus two, the answer is four. It's not a trick question. It's not, it's not 22 or something like that. Um, you're going to have uh, 60 seconds. Um, we'll begin the timer after I ask the first question. If you get a question right, we're just going to move on to the next question. I'm not going to say, yes, great job. That was terrific. We're just moving right on so we can get through all 10 of these in 60 seconds. Okay, clear? Yeah, can, you, can you pass or? Or are there are only ten questions. Only, there, are, there are only ten questions, so you can pass, okay. but then you don't win anything. Yeah, but, but but can you come back to that question later, or you're trying to move the clock no, along? No, no, I, I don't. Okay. I don't think so. No, um, All right, so I'll stay with each question until I get it right. All right, okay, and um, so, but take a second. Take a literal. You have time to take a second. Don't rush. We've had people. Get wrong what late radio station they're listening to. We've had people get wrong the number of continents. We've had people get wrong how many letters in the alphabet. We have had people get wrong what is a feline. So take a half a second, think, and answer. Don't rush. Good. Very good. Good okay. advice. All right. We're all rooting for you, Doc. Okay. Cool. Name a fruit. Grapefruit. What day of the year do Americans celebrate Independence Day? July. What day of the year? What date? July 4th. Okay. What Middle Eastern country is Netanyahu the leader of? Israel. At five foot four inches tall, who was the shortest president of the United States? Millard Fillmore. Ah, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Millard Fillmore was indeed our last Whig president, but uh, he was uh, substantially higher, a substantially taller at five foot nine than our shortest president, James Madison, who was uh, also president during the War of 1812. I'm sorry, Doc, uh, but but, uh, all is not lost because we're going to give you a a refrigerator magnet anyway, okay? (laughs) 
Uh, that's why I called. That's, that's what right. I really well, lucky need. Lucky you. Lucky you. I'm going to put you on hold. <laughs> Give Kenneth your information and uh, tell your son, you know, that you the fact that, that he needed you to pick him up, it earned you a refrigerator magnet today. So maybe you might have to split half of that with him. <laughs> Frank, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Have a great day today. Thanks, Doc. And by the way, since you're not always up at this time, you can always listen to the podcast whenever you are awake. That's true. I can. So did you think about doing that? All right. right. Hang on. Um, Take uh, Doc's information if you would. By the way, if you are someone that is unexpectedly awake at this time, uh, listen to the podcast. You can search it on any podcast app and um, just search The Other Side of Midnight on uh, iTunes, Spotify, whatever. Hit the subscribe button, and then it will automatically come to your phone every day. I know a few people have been complaining that the podcasts are have been uploaded this week a little later than usual. We're working on that. I spoke to some folks here, and uh, I they they told me with a wink and a nod that they're going to upload our podcasts first uh, because I, I told them there's a lot of people with pitchforks ready to storm the radio station because they're not getting these podcasts early enough. So let's see what happens today. But uh, it's still worth subscribing, and then you'll get these podcasts whenever whenever they're uploaded. All right, hey. Um, Joseph Ween is here. Joe, are you a fan of Girl Scout cookies? Yes, I am. In fact, I just spent about $30 buying them. Who did you buy them from? A friend of mine at work. Friend of yours at work. Okay. So I uh, I don't really have much of a sweet tooth, and I try to stay away just from cookies in general because I gain weight so quickly if I even look at a carbohydrate. So um, my wife really likes to have Girl Scout cookies in the house. Not only does she like them, but she finds that a lot of uh, a lot of times when we have guests over, they they are fans of these Girl Scout cookies. So so put put them out, and they always go. Well, I tend to give mine away. Is that funny? Because I. I like to have sweets in the house, but I don't really eat sweets yeah, that okay. much anymore. Right. You're 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 but, like a gym rat. Yeah, if I could yeah, I am. So if I could just say one thing I would change about them. On the box of thin mints, right? Instead of having a hey, a serving is two calories, they should just put the calories for the whole sleeve. Because you know when you open up a sleeve of thin mints, you're gonna crush the whole thing. It's gone. And that's my philosophy, too. I don't have a big sweet tooth, but when I have the Thin Mints, the sleeve is gone. Like a Malamar, too. Right. I open up the box, it's gone. So what are the types? So you got the uh, the the Thin Mint, the um, the Wild Samoan, right? Isn't that one, or is that not one? I think it's something like that. Yeah. I think uh, it's the short, short w- What's the one? The one I'm trying to think, I just have to look at. Oh, it's called the Caramel Delight. That's the one I was thinking of, which is it looks like a miniature donut. That's not bad. Uh, the peanut butter patties. I don't know that I've tried those. The peanut butter sandwich. Those. those look pretty good. Uh, shortbreads are are popular. Adventurefuls are new. Those are. Uh, that I can't, sounds too adventurous. For yeah, me. same. Those are indulgent brownie inspired cookies with with a caramel flavored cream. Oh, it's not for me. I don't like the caramel. So I like, I would try these peanut butter sandwiches though. So anyway. My um, my goddaughter, Penelope, her mom sends a text message to my wife and me with with her husband on it. Right. So it's a four way group text message that we have. She says, well, uh, let me get exactly the the message here. Uh, she, she says. Um, uh, let's see here. All right. Hooray, tis the season. And that includes a link to buy Girl Scout cookies. 
And I, I've really never understood what lesson the children are learning when it's the parents that are asking you to purchase these Girl Scout cookies. So when it's a kid going out there, hustling, going door to door, uh, trying to uh, trying to sell their wares. Okay, you know, you buy some, the kid's working hard. But it's not the parent's assignment to sell these Girl Scout cookies. Yeah, I've run into this before when I was, uh, you know, obviously uh, uh, grammar school, the candy bars were a big thing, right? right? But then what happens is kind of like a project, a science project, the parents get involved and they sell 30 boxes for their kid. Just not that one box they wanted you to sell. So it becomes like a competition of who's going to sell more between the parents. Right. See, I hate that. See, I think it's different yeah. if if you said you bought it from a friend at work. And obviously we did buy Girl Scout cookies you know, from my goddaughter. And we spent excessively. But I, I think it's one thing if a parent brings their child to work and then – the child goes to the people at the workplace and says, do you want to buy some Girl Scout cookies? I think it's a different thing if the parent is basically a subcontractor and putting the arm on their colleagues to buy Girl Scout cookies. And you know what happened to me that day? So you have one place I went to because there was multi-stops, multi-places I had to go see. And every place I went, there was somebody whose kid, they were selling cookies (laughs) For their kid. Right. So, right. I mean, I, I'll buy one box from you or I know this person and I see they, I could see the sheet they're having a hard time unless they're trying to trick me and giving me a blank sheet. So I spent 20 bucks there. Then I go to the other thing. Oh, my kid's selling cookies. So now I got to spend $10 there. I, I, I think, Frank, you know, you, you hit on a really good point. The kids should be out there hustling, selling right. it themselves. If they sell one box, they sell one box. But then they have to understand there's less reward for – if they now, didn't work as Now, hard. I get the era that we're living in. It's like when all the baseball players were doing steroids, they yeah. would say, everyone else is doing it. I have to do this just to compete. The one child whose parents aren't uh, putting the arm on their, their friends and colleagues, that parent puts their child at a disadvantage because all the other Girl Scouts are doing that. So maybe it's maybe it's a little, a little unfair. See, but well, go ahead. Like what my father did. You know, he was very strict and very much get out there and yeah. work. You know, he would say, okay, you have to sell these can candy bars. I'm going to buy five because I want five in the house. But if you want anyone else to buy them, and this included my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, right. take the box, go to their house, or call them up and ask them to buy it. He wouldn't do it for me at all. Well, So when I was a child, I don't even remember it. Be, uh, when we, we sold candy when I was in school, and I, I don't remember. I think you did get prizes if you sold a lot of candy or whatever the case may be. I don't remember why we were so interested in selling the candy. But we I, I remember we did this in elementary school at least three or four years. And when I was a child, I don't even remember having the option of asking my parents to <laughs> go to work and bring this candy form and have them fill it out. I would go to all my neighbors and whomever else I encountered and, and try to sell them the candy. Yeah, you'd walk the candy, door, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But but anyway, so obviously we bought these and my wife really likes Girl Scout cookies and she says to me, she says, I just bought Girl Scout cookies. This is just last night. She says, I just bought Girl Scout cookies from a stranger earlier in this week. I said, what stranger did you buy Girl Scout cookies from? And she said, a girl was going door to door. She seemed nice, and I wanted Girl Scout cookies, so I bought it from her. And I said, you know that we always know someone that is selling Girl Scout cookies. Why not just say we're buying from 
a friend of ours or a family member. And she says, no, that's not true. I don't know anybody that's uh, that's selling Girl Scout cookies. I said, last year, my little cousin Maddie was selling Girl Scout cookies, and I'm sure she's going to hit us up again this year. Uh, of course, you're going to buy from her. And she said, oh, yeah, I forgot about her. So I think we're in for probably three major Girl Scout cookie purchases um, one from this stranger, one from my goddaughter Penelope, and one I'm anticipating from my little cousin uh, Maddie. But the good news is, Joe, next time you come over, if you're ever in the mood for Girl Scout cookies, we're well stocked. I'll have them. I like, I forget the what, I think you mentioned it, Frank. It's kind of chocolate on the back, kind of looks like the donut. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, and, and they call them, and I didn't know that it was called this, honestly. They're called Caramel Delights. Yeah, that must be it. That's a good one, too. Or the shortbreads. I could just, you know. Those yeah, are, so I want to try these peanut butter sandwiches. So the I'm question is, if you fan. buy the Thin Mints, do you put them in the freezer? Wait, I've heard people do that, right? And that you yeah. do that, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Thin Mints, believe it or not, I try to give that box away. Oh, really? You yeah. don't care about Yeah, about yeah, the I mean, the, you, know, cause, you know, as you know, even at this time in the morning when, when I got here, I've already drank eight cup, cups of coffee. Uh, I'm yeah. always caffeinated. Right. Um, so when I do have... That I like the shortbread. I, I like something that goes with a coffee, and I don't think Thin Mints really. Oh, go that's with fair. Coffee. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It does kind of melt. It's not yeah. a good dunking. Yeah, it's not a good dunking coffee. But that's true. That is all the rage to uh, sort of uh, put them in the freezer and eat them like a, a frozen treat. But um, whatever the case may be, the lesson is: if you're selling Girl Scout cookies, just look for my wife because. We're buying Girl Scout cookies from everything. The reason the Girl Scouts are going to get to expand is because of our Girl Scout cookie purchases this year. So if you're a Girl Scout, you're welcome. Hey, speaking of getting paid, I got to tell you, yesterday I received two checks. One was for a whopping, after taxes, $1.66. Uh, for the fact that they used my voice along with Curtis's. I gotta ask Curtis if he still gets paid for this. F- on an episode of Damages 14 years ago, I'm st- I got a $3 check, and then after you take out taxes, it's $1.66 from that Damages appearance. So thank wow. you to that show, Damages, a great show with Glenn Close, Ted Danson, a lot of interesting people, William Hurt. And um, the other check that I got was much more substantial. I can't even believe this. They paid me. I'm not going to say how much because I don't want to screw it up for the next guy. But they paid me. uh, And again, it's not a life-changing amount of money. For that William Shatner appearance that I did in New Jersey. Now, think about that. I got to basically have dinner with William Shatner, watch Star Trek II, and then ask him questions about it. And I didn't have to pay him. They paid me. So that was like winning the lottery yesterday. I got to tell you. I, I There was one time, and I've told you the story before, where I wasn't sure I placed a bet on the roulette table. And they thought I placed a bet. And I, it was a $100 chip. And it hit on whatever number it was. And I had no idea that I won this money. Because I still, to this day, don't think I placed that bet. They start out... Uh, counting $3,500 worth of casino chips, I ran so fast to that casino cashier's window. It was like one of those Bugs Bunny cartoons. I ran so fast. There was just a silhouette left of me in the in the casino. There was not even a person. You could, I made even the sound like, meow. 
And that was me running to cash this check at the bank. I said, what? Is this a my candid camera or something? Is this one of those things where, where if I cash this, am I going am I, am I to set off a, an IRS alarm? So that was pretty neat. Big thank you to the Shatner folks and the folks at um, Mills Entertainment for, uh, for that opportunity. And uh, again, I never dreamed of getting paid, but that was certainly very nice. All right, we're going to do uh, 15 seconds of fame in just a minute. If you want to comment on anything at all for 15 seconds, you can do so. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Yes, uh, The Other Side of Midnight by Stevie G and the Marketeers. By the way, last thing I'll mention on the on the Shatner front. Shatner got a lot of attention this week for complaining about this new blue check Twitter um, policy. Have you heard about this? Beginning April 1st, Elon Musk is going to start, chose, uh, start charging those of us that are blue checks on Twitter that are verified $8 a month to keep it. So Shatner tweets, hey, Elon Musk, what's this about blue checks going away unless we pay Twitter? I've been here for 15 years giving my time and witty thoughts all for bupkis. Now you're telling me that I have to pay for something you gave me for free? I completely agree with him. I'm not paying. No, they could take my blue check away. Now, they shouldn't. It helps Twitter for me to be verified. You don't have all these Frank Morano imitators running around out there like you do in the world of Facebook. But um, I think, I don't know, I, I get what he's trying to do, and they got to come up with some other ways to make money. I don't think that's a good philosophy. All right, uh, without further ado. The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Tony. Sizzle, moron, sizzle. Mm, Eddie. Good reporters get their exercises by digging for facts. Others do it by jumping to conclusions. Mike. Yeah, easy pick up a JFK, make him take the train over to Howard Beach. Pick him up over there, the shuttle. That's not bad, actually. Raji! Although official inflation is 7% only, greedy supermarkets and other businesses keep raising prices by 50 to 100%, thus pauperizing the poor even more. Mario! Yes, uh, I, I know this uh, guy, uh, White Plains, who don't like Italians. Ross, why don't you move to uh, Israel, Netanyahu? You'll give them a happy ending, your mama's boy. Al. Good morning. Great show as always. Keep it up, all right? Have a great day. E. Frank. Yes, uh, your former phone talent coordinator, Molly Frank, there. What 
happened that the accused are Hey, Frank, uh, just so you know, the CIA investigated this. If you play your recording of your talking backwards, if you lie, you'll hear the truth. Look- and Brandon. Hey, careful, Frank. I really hate to see you get canceled. You're pushing the uh, envelope tonight. Uh, fair enough. Hey, uh, so be it. I had a good run. All right. Um, assuming this is not my last show, I will be back tomorrow. We have some interesting things tomorrow. Joe, thanks for hanging out. Hope you had fun. Frank, the pleasure was all mine. I can't wait to come back. All right. Uh, Frank Morano, good day. Good day.